0: Welcome back to The Swamp, my friends. It is once again time to do a compilation. As always, once a month I will compile some of the scariest and downright disturbing stories sent in during that month. Some of these you may have heard before, and some of these may be new to you. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future video, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net, or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share a story with everyone here in The Swamp and stories like yours that truly help keep this show going. Now, without further ado, let's get into these creepy and allegedly true disturbing horror stories. Dear Swamp Dweller, Firstly, I would like to say that you are one of my favorite horror narration channels. This story is true and it is probably the scariest thing to ever happen to me. The more people that hear this story, the better. I do not want others making the same dumb decisions as myself. I hope you all enjoy it. For context, we are female. When this happened back in mid-February 2020, my friends and I were all 15 years old. This story takes place in Italy on a school trip we went on. The trip itself is all right, but being the dumb teenagers we are, We decided to push the boundaries our school booked us into an average hotel low budget so one night two of my friends asked if we wanted to go sneak out with them during the night and go to a nearby beach i am generally quite sensible but they kept persuading me until i finally gave in we would only get one opportunity to do this right so we all waited till about 1am messaging each other when to leave our rooms and meet up in the corridor It was only three of us, so we did not want anyone else to know as they might snitch on us. Looking back at it now, this was probably a reckless decision considering the events that would unfold in the hours to come and how that night could have ended. The teachers were sleeping in rooms opposite of ours, so we had to be so quiet as to not get caught. I can remember still how worried I was that we would be caught, and that they would ring my parents. If you could not already tell, I am generally quite anxious so I avoid breaking rules most of the time. This night was obviously an exception. We were successful, though, and managed to sneak our way to the lobby. For whatever reason, no one was at the front desk, so we hurried through the lobby and out the front door, not waiting around to get caught. None of us knew Italian, so this was probably one of the dumbest things we could have done. We walked for about two miles down to the beach, all smug thinking we had pulled off our perfectly devised plan. The streets were completely empty, not surprising considering that this was 1am, but it did not stop that anxious feeling in the back of my mind. I knew that we were doing something that would get us in trouble if we were caught. We had to walk down hundreds of steps to get to the beach, plenty of time to reconsider our actions, but we were stupid and kept going. Something I regret now, to this very day. The beach was quite beautiful. It was a full moon that night, and the beach was lit up in a beautiful soft light. We had the whole place to ourselves. We messed around for ten minutes or so, and then my friends said they wanted to go to the sea. I was adamant about not going in, despite their protest, so they told me to keep an eye on their stuff. We had only brought a few jackets and our phones. They rolled up their trousers and went knee-deep into the sea. I started filming them and taking pictures. The others would be so jealous, I remember thinking. Just wait till they see these photos. They spent about five minutes splashing around in the cold ocean before they came back onto the beach and started stripping off more. I could not believe it. They were going to go swimming. They had the ingenious idea to go in their underwear. I could not stop laughing at this point. Looking back at it now, I should have persuaded them not to. I did not understand the gravity of the situation we would soon be in. They both ran towards the waves and jumped in at the same time, screaming and giggling in the freezing water. I stood on the shore laughing and filming them. Whilst guarding their things, I got this eerie feeling of being watched. I can only put it down to instinct. Naturally, I put my guard up and I looked around. I am so glad I did because God knows what would have happened if I did not notice them. There were two men sitting, maybe thirty meters away from us or so in the dark. I cannot be sure, as I only noticed them for a second or so before turning back around. But it really looked like one of the men was holding his phone up and filming us. My stomach dropped. I called both of my friends. They must have noticed the tone of my voice was completely shaken despite my best efforts to be discreet. They walked up to the sand towards me, dripping wet and freezing cold. I told them the two men were sitting behind us watching us and filming us. I had never seen them so scared. That is when the trepidation hit us. No one knew where we were. They had no idea we were here. As far as everyone was concerned, we were fast asleep in our hotel rooms. These men could easily take us down, kidnap us, do whatever. No one would ever know. I whispered to my friends that we needed to leave right now. I told them to not bother getting dressed, just grab their stuff and leave as inconspicuously as possible. They agreed with no hesitation. At this point, I was just worried. The men must have known that we saw them. Despite our best efforts, nothing could conceal the raw fear we felt and probably looked, too. As we approached the steps, I make a quick glance behind us. A sweat broke out on my forehead. The men were now slowly walking towards us. Fight or flight kicked in and I shouted at my friends to run. Barefoot and soaked, they scrambled up the steps as quickly as they could. We ran and ran and kept pushing and pushing. I did not look behind me for fear of knowing how close they could be. We did not stop once we reached the top of the steps and onto the pavement. We were running on pure adrenaline at this point. Our legs burned. I looked down to see both my friend's feet were bloody, but they did not stop at one point. We did not stop running until the hotel was in sight. I turned around again, and to my relief, I could not see the men. We walked through the entrance to the hotel. This time, however, there was a man at the front desk. He started speaking in Italian. We did not understand him, so we kept walking my friends leaving bloody footprints through the lobby. Once we reached the corridor, we made a mutual vow to never tell anyone about that night, and we all went back to our rooms. The man at the front desk must have told our teachers that he saw us at 3 a.m. walking through his hotel lobby leaving bloody footprints everywhere, because that morning I woke up to a loud banging on our door. For the sake of the story, I will call her Miss Smith. Miss Smith was shouting at everyone, asking who it was that left last night. Of course, everyone was confused, And did not dare speak up neither did my friends after several speeches made about the severity of our actions and how they were going to find out who it was i was terrified my two friends finally spoke up and admitted it was them thankfully they left my name out of it which i will forever be grateful for the teachers were furious as you can imagine both my friends received phone calls home and they had to delete all pictures taken that night The teachers wanted all the evidence deleted as it reflected badly on them because in their care, we did something so reckless, they were just concerned about, you know, losing their job. My friends didn't really argue because they were still protecting my name in all of this and they did not want the teachers asking for the photos, so they just obliged. I always think back to how that night could have ended, how terribly wrong it could have gone, and despite it being one of the dumbest things I've ever done. I'm glad I was there though. Who knows what would have happened to my friends if I wasn't there looking out for them. So I moved into this new flat in November of 2020. It is built at the back of my landlord's house right against the back of his house. It is the perfect place for me as I just started my new career and I am fresh out of university and my job is awfully close by. It is a two-room flat with one being the bedroom and the bathroom and the other being the kitchen area. So to get to my story of rather suspicions, my landlord seems like an okay guy, He's a bit young to own a house, but normal enough. But there are some things that have caught my interest. At first, while I was settling in and getting used to the new area, I come from a province very far away from where my new flat is, and it is a lot more rural than I'm used to. So I have a lot of new roads and stuff to learn. I noticed that he exercises a lot, or a lot from my perspective anyway, he is super fit When I mentioned that I would like to go running and hiking and stuff, he gave me pre-measured routes for running and maps all over the nature preserves around here. He told me where one can go hiking, which I guess is not that weird, but sometimes he exercises with a bulletproof vest and full combat clothing and boots, and that's a bit weird. He does everything himself, he fixes everything himself, and he works in the garden and goes on long walks like a machine. Oh, yes, and this is very weird, sometimes he sits on his porches outside and burns papers in the barbecue and has a drink while the papers burn while he puts more on top of it. Almost as if he was having a private party all by himself. Because I have to move past his house to get to my flat in the back sometimes, I see more than what I'm supposed to, I guess. I've seen my landlord moving through his house more than one time with a gun and it looks like he is training for something. I have also seen him lying behind his gun looking through the telescope and playing with the gun. I have seen him get up from the bushes in the garden. I didn't even know he was there. I think he spent the whole night out there in the garden behind the gun doing who knows what. I have seen him busy doing what looks like practicing survival skills making fires without lighters and chopping wood making rope and stuff like that. All types of tarpaulin type stuff. All these strange things he just gets up to don't really add up. My landlord also spends a lot of time in what he calls his workshop just doing stuff, building stuff. You can hear all sorts of machines running and stopping and grinding and hammering and this murmuring coming from him. I would love to get in there and see what's actually going on. My landlord also has a private office that he spends a lot of time in, and no one is allowed in there except for himself. It is kept locked at all times and even has an extra security gate on the door. My landlord also always carries a pistol with him everywhere he goes, and a pocket knife. He even goes running with them. Sometimes, when he gets ready for work, he dresses very professionally, and still has his pistol with him. Even though you cannot see it, he looks like a normal person going into an office job, but he is strapped to the gills under it. He carries this military-type backpack with him everywhere, and you can see it. It is definitely heavy. There are definitely some bullets hanging off the side of it as well. It's not that big, maybe the size of a small laptop bag. I have also seen my landlord loading and unloading his truck. It is a small old truck that used to be very popular in the area we live. Anyway, he loads gun bags and massive backpacks that seem to be very heavy, and he is usually gone for the whole day, sometimes the weekend. When he comes back, he is all tired and sometimes sunburned and looks like he has been through hell. I have this preconception of a hitman from the movies, and my landlord only slightly fits into that stereotype, but as far as I could see, besides for the fact that he shows little emotion and his eyes mostly seem like they are hiding a lot of hurt and strange behavior, they also change from gray to green to some sort of brown, depending on his mood. I don't know if this is something that happens to a lot of people, but it's kind of weird to me. All I can do is send in this story of this very strange thing that I'm dealing with. I would like to share more of what happens in the future, but I would also like to know what people think. Maybe I'm just overthinking it, or maybe, just maybe, my landlord's doing something more extracurricular. A couple of years ago, I was working at a Target and heard stories about trafficking in the store. I personally do not believe that because I am from upstate New York and that is unusual, so I kind of shrugged it off as no big deal. After I clocked out for the night, it may have been around 4 or 5 pm I think, I wanted to get a few groceries. I noticed these two girls who were wearing dresses and looked like they were pretending to shop. They stopped me and asked me if I went to church. I told them I have not gone since I was a kid. They started talking about how they have a church group or something and I should go. I also noticed there was a weird guy standing in one of the aisles just looking at them, just kind of listening in. At this point, I'm thinking, I just wanted to grab my groceries and go home, but the girls would not just let me walk away. They said I could follow them to their group down the road and attend a class if I liked to see it. I told them politely that I was not interested. One of the girls looked a little strange, and something told me that this was not right. So to get them to leave me alone, I told them to give me the address and maybe I will visit. They did not really give me an address, they just told me it was on a street. I walked away feeling a little weirded out. I also saw them approaching other women. As I was checking out, I told my fellow co-workers about the two girls and the dude and what they were saying. They told the manager on duty and they had security do a check out. Thankfully our cart attendant walked me out to my car. The next day or two after, I get to work and see a cop car. I was told that a couple was shopping, and the wife was approached by two people who gave them the same speech I got. The husband knew something was wrong and he told the manager. They called the cops. Unfortunately, the two people left the store and the cops filed their report. A few hours later we found out that there was a group of people targeting targets and Walmarts and such and trying to traffic people from those locations. The story changes when they approach women, but it's always at least two people. They are visiting the stores to approach women in the daylight and nighttime. So please be aware of your surroundings no matter where you are. I am glad that I followed my gut. Even though I do not work there anymore, I carry my tactical flashlight in my purse wherever I go. Unfortunately, in New York mace and tasers are illegal. I did not think it could happen here, but it did. I now do pick up for my groceries instead of shopping. After receiving my bachelor's degree, I wanted to take some time to see the world before settling down in a career. I ended up taking a job as an English teacher in South Korea. I loved the adventure of being alone in an entirely different culture on the other side of the world. However, as a young, blonde, white woman, I received a lot of unwanted attention from the men there, who tended to fetishize foreign women and disrespect boundaries. However, I was strong, trained in martial arts, and was comfortable in my ability to defend myself, so I did not let it get to me all that much. One night, however, I had a close call i was heading home from work after dark walking several blocks home to my apartment this night however something was different i soon became aware of footsteps behind me that followed me the entire way it could just be a coincidence i thought there was always people walking on the sidewalks anyway but this just felt off i made it to my apartment which was on the third floor of a small building above a chinese restaurant There were only about 9 apartments in total in the building, so the fact that the footsteps continued to follow me as I entered the building and climbed the stairs made it less likely that this was a coincidence. Whatever, I thought. If the dude wants trouble, he's going to find it. I continued up my apartment, unlocked it, and went in. I did not bother locking it because, as I always did, I was only coming in to change into my tennis shoes and get my dog to take her out for a walk. My dog was a rather large Alaskan Malamute. Like me, she stood out like a sore thumb in this city because most everyone else owned a cute little toy breed, usually Pekingese or Shih Tzus or something like that. When I walked Hiori, people often let out a scream and ran to the other side of the street. Anyway, upon entering my apartment, I removed my work shoes, got Hiyori, and went back to the door to put on my sneakers. As I bent to put them on, I leaned against the door to balance and fell through, as the man who had been following me was opening it. Not expecting me to stumble out with a monster dog, the man looked shocked and frightened. He grabbed his keys out of his pocket and went over to my neighbor's door, pretending to fumble them to try to open it. I gave him a look as if to say, yeah, freaking right, locked my door and took Kiori down the steps outside. Once I made it outside, I crossed the street and hid behind a car. Sure enough, within just a few seconds, The man, my supposed neighbor, emerged from the building, looking around for a while and then left. He had clearly spotted me walking home and saw his opportunity to follow me and break in and attack me. Had I not leaned against the door, at that very moment, he would have burst in and attempted to proceed with his plans. This incident shook me, but I never let this one or the other incidents bother me too much or stop me from doing what I wanted to do or go where I wanted to go. I just go prepared ready to act, and the next time a guy makes a bad decision like that, it's going to be felt. For the past year or so, I've been noticing that things around me don't seem normal anymore. I continue to have this overwhelming sense that everything is fake, in a way, or almost dreamlike. I've even kicked around the idea that I may have died already and I'm in some sort of state of purgatory. I recently took my family on a weekend getaway to Seattle. Being a couple hundred miles away from our home in Cello, Washington, it's an easy trip for my wife and I to manage with our two kids. One is 11 and the other is four months old. Over the course of our weekend excursion, I experienced a few things that I found to be odd and left me feeling a bit uneasy. The first occurrence was trivial enough but it sort of set the tone for the eeriness of the weekend. I was gazing out of the window of our hotel room on the 12th floor, sipping a cup of coffee, when I noticed a plastic bag drifting in the wind. I watched the bag bounce around and dance in the air as it slowly descended. A green dumpster 12 stories below caught my eye and I immediately thought, what if the bag floated all the way down there and landed in that dumpster? I stood at the window for five minutes or so watching this bag slowly float towards the ground gliding left, right, back and forth. The more I watched the bag, the more confident I became that it would find its way into the dumpster. And it did. This bag that I noticed off in the distance drifted 12 freaking stories and perfectly navigated its way into the dumpster below my building. Later that day, I was in the hotel lobby approaching the elevator to head up to my room. In front of me, there was a man with two children waiting for the elevator as well. The man had a guitar case strapped to his back along with an amplifier and various other bags. His back was to me, and he had a hoodie on. For some reason, I thought to myself, what if that's Ed? Ed was a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in years. We used to work at an olive garden together in our younger days. We also played guitar together and did a fair amount of partying. Now, here's the weird part, and my wife thinks I'm freaking crazy, but bear with me. The weird part was how confident I was that this guy was going to turn around and it would be Ed. The same confidence, almost certainty, I would say, that I had in the trash bag flying into the dumpster. The elevator doors opened and the man and his two children walked inside. As the man turned around to enter the floor on the elevator button console, it should not have been Ed that I recognized, but you guessed it, it was Ed. We were both thrilled to see each other and even held the door open to chat for a moment, hindering other folks in the process. Even as this was all occurring though, I couldn't shake this feeling that this isn't real. It's a very difficult thing to describe, but things just didn't feel natural. Later, that evening, my 11-year-old son and I were on the balcony outside of our hotel room. He was peering over the edge when he suddenly whimpered out underneath his breath, that poor guy. When I asked him who he was talking about, he said, that bumblebee on the ground next to the dumpster. He's dead. We were on the 12th floor like I mentioned earlier. There is no way this kid could see a dead bumblebee on the ground floor. Not to mention the alleged bee was laying next to the dumpster that was the manifested landing zone for the floating trash bag. We argued a bit over whether or not he could see the bee when he finally convinced me to go down and take a look. As we made our way down to the street level, my thought process shifted. The same confidence that I had previously regarding the trash bag and Ed was back. Although I didn't mention it to my son, I was becoming increasingly certain that this bee would be here. And, well, it was. It was right freaking there. Right next to the green dumpster. The next evening, I took my family to a place called Gameworks. It's very similar to Dave and Buster's or an adult version of Chuck E. Cheese. I placed our keys, wallets, and other important stuff into our backpack, and we carried it into the establishment. We spent a couple of hours playing games before finally counting our tickets and claiming prizes at the prize booth. We pocketed the prizes and went down the block to the Cheesecake Factory for dinner. After being seated for a few moments, my wife realizes that I do not have the backpack on. The backpack containing all of our money, credit cards, car keys, and not to mention food and supplies for our four-month-old baby. The bizarre thing is that I have no recollection of ever taking the bag off. Apparently, I did because it was gone but I could have sworn up and down that I never took it off. I immediately go into panic mode, leap up from the table, and take off towards the game works establishment. I run inside, dart around frantically for about a minute or two with the bag nowhere in sight. Finally, I calm down and focus. After breathing and focusing for a moment, I am greeted with the same confidence that I mentioned before. I was confident I would not leave that place without my bag. At that moment, a man approached me, waving his arms in the air and calling me by my first name. He said, here, Cody, I've got your bag, man. Now get back to the Cheesecake Factory and enjoy your dinner." I was awestruck and definitely beside myself at that moment, as I had no freaking clue who this man was or how he knew my name or where I was eating dinner. I didn't even think to question the man, I just reached out, grabbed the bag and left. This might seem coincidental to a lot of you, but these are just recent examples of how my life unfolds daily. Either I am a walking conduit of coincidence, or something larger is at play. My wife thinks I'm nuts but things are definitely not as they used to be. I don't know exactly how or why, but they just aren't. Things just don't seem real. I was 16 years old when me and my friends, who I will call Evan and Jake, wanted to rent a hotel for the night since it was spring break. We got to the hotel and checked in. It had a funky smell, but we still stayed there. Once we got to our room, it was about 3 p.m., so we decided to go swimming. The pool was downstairs, separated from the hotel. Once we got to the entrance, there was a man at least six foot three and all black with a hood covering his face facing us. I panicked a little bit, but not out loud. We got into the pool and swam for a few hours until we saw the man again all black sitting on a chair by the pool. I cleared my throat. throat) Um, can I help you, sir? I asked. No response. I still was a little paranoid. I put my face in the water at the bottom of the pool. There was another black figure, with all black. I screamed like a little girl and ran for the door. I looked back and saw nothing. Not the guy in the chair or the guy under the pool. My friends thought I might just be seeing things but I saw what I saw as clear as water. I definitely did not feel like swimming anymore, so I decided to go get dinner at a nearby restaurant. I got a table for me and my friends to sit at, and there again, I saw the man in all black on the other side of the dining room. He was staring at me. I had enough at this point. I went over there and I lost track of him, and he took off. After, we ate and I decided that this trip has gone too far. We should leave in the morning, but my friends did not like that idea. Sometime around 10.30 that night, me and my friends doze off in our hotel room. I woke up to some strange noises. I saw the shadow of a figure at the end of my bed. I calmed myself down and told myself that it was just my hat. But I was getting thirsty as well, so I reached under the bed to try to grab my water bottle. But I grabbed something, and I was totally shocked by what I grabbed. It was my hat. I was not ever more scared in my life than at that moment. I could not help but scream at the top of my lungs when I heard a voice next to my ear say, you're next. I jumped out of bed and realized it was two men, right there, in all black. I tried to fight them, but it was no use once they grabbed me and dragged me out of the room. I tried to scream, but the guy was covering my mouth. I passed out and woke up in a stretcher. It turned out those guys knifed me while I was passed out and someone caught them but the doctor said no one could catch the guys who got me. To this day, I have a nightlight at night and I'm not ashamed or scared to admit that. Well, first I would like to start off by saying that I am a truck driver and I've grown up around the trucking industry and have plenty of experiences I can share. I have stopped listening to music while I drive, and I've just been playing Swamp Dweller episodes. My personal experiences do not seem to be horror stories, really, but this one could have really been for the worse. Not long after I got my CDL, I was taking a trip from Texas to Pennsylvania. Part of that route is I-44. For those who do not know, a good part of Interstate 44 is the old historical Route 66. Anyway... I was on the toll road part in Oklahoma, just driving, listening to Swamp Dweller episodes. I had my CB radio turned off at the time. I know this because of what I did in this situation. I came across a woman waving me down on the side of the road beside a car with its hood up. I started gearing down and getting ready to pull over in behind her, so I could help her. As I slowed down, I heard a voice on my CB say, I grabbed the mic and was going to ask why when I looked at my CB and saw that it was off. I then heard again, Don't stop. Not sure what to do, I decided to pull in front of the car instead of behind it. As I pulled past, I saw a man crouched in front of the car with a shotgun. Some mysterious voice saved my life that day. This next one comes from a driver I grew up with. To keep his anonymity, I will use his handle, Big John. In the late 1980s, Big John was working heavy haul. That could be wide loads, heavy stuff, tall loads, or a combination of any. During this time, he was hauling a dozer from the oil fields of Colorado to another location in South Dakota. On his way down a windy, steep mountainous road above Colorado Springs, he was called out by his lead pilot car to either stop immediately or do not let off until you get to the interstate since big john's load was heavy he just kept going as not to lose momentum it is at this point when he recounts his story that he always gets that thousand yard stare that makes what happened next not very difficult to believe big john says that when he came over the next peak before heading down the next steep grade He saw a young girl in a white dress with long black hair just standing in the middle of the road, holding a teddy bear by her side. His pilot car screamed on the CB to just keep going. Do not swerve, she is not real. He pauses and takes a deep breath and sighs. His exact words every time are, I hit that little girl, but she didn't go under the rig. I hit her, but she didn't go under the truck. According to his recount, The little girl was still standing in the road behind his rig when he passed, and she was just waving at him in his mirror. Being a driver myself these days, I understand much better why this tears him apart. People who genuinely care about the way they handle their rigs would as soon drive off a cliff and destroy any chance of keeping a job, let alone their own life before hitting anyone on purpose. And to intentionally drive into a little girl would kill whatever bit of your soul you have left. I can only imagine how it has really affected Big John, since he quit driving not long after this incident. He said that what made it even crazier was his follow car drove through the girl too, but did not even see her. Big John always finishes by whispering, There's some crazy stuff out there, man. If you're going to drive one of those big trucks, make sure you can trust yourself. Hey Swamp Dweller, I have a story for you. Unfortunately, it is kind of short and kind of anticlimactic, but I do believe it might fit into one of your videos, as it is pretty creepy. So, I'm a truck driver and I absolutely love it. I was driving westbound on I-70 in Utah. It was dark, and the rain made it for a miserable ride. I made it to the last exit on I-70 before I-15 Interchange and called it a night on an off-ramp about 25 miles north of a town called Beaver, Utah. Yeah, I know it's not very safe, but there is really a trucker parking shortage out here. It's pretty pitiful. Anyways, back to the story. I called it a night, and I'm winding down from the long day of grinding, and I'm just sitting in the captain's chair in the dark with no lights on. On this exit ramp, essentially, it is the middle of nowhere, just open pastures and mountains surrounding me. So sitting in my chair, I suddenly started catching movement out of the corner of my eye. I just chalked it up to possibly something like cows, or maybe my imagination. I did my best to blow it off, and continued sitting there talking with my wife, which was with me, by the way. I kept catching movement repeatedly, though, and finally I decided to tell my wife about it. She just got up and closed the windshield curtains, I have something like that to keep privacy for myself. She just said, let's go to bed, it's been a long day. That was the end of the night, and we went to bed. The next morning we woke up and chatted for a bit. She told me she heard a couple of bangs outside. She said it sounded like someone banging on the trailer. So we're chatting along when suddenly there are three knocks on my driver's side door. So I get up and open the curtain. There was absolutely nobody there. I got up to answer quickly because I was thinking, maybe it's a cop ready to tell me that I need to get out of this, maybe it's some sort of private land and I can't park here. I'm getting these goosebumps just typing this right now. I'm in the middle of nowhere, there's not a soul around, I'm looking around and in my side mirrors and everything and there was nobody there at all. I look at my wife and I said, what the hell is going on, there's no one here. She got up and looked around as well and said what the hell. Swamp Dweller, I want you to know that I booked it out of there quicker than all get out, man. 100% truth behind this, I am a horrible liar, and not much of a storyteller. I know, I know this was not much of a story, but it was creepy to me. At least I think so. In case you are wondering, I did not open the door, nor did I get out to investigate. I probably should have, and next time, maybe I just might do that. So my trucking route is from here in Connecticut all the way down to Kentucky and Tennessee. It is a good run. I get to see pretty much all the sights the East Coast has to offer. But there is one area of the country that gets wild, and that area is around the Appalachian Mountains. You guys probably know that it is one of the poorest areas of the country, one that got really screwed over as the coal mining jobs started to dwindle and the local economy went down the crapper. I really feel for those people down there. Seeing how entrenched in poverty some of the families are is just so heartbreaking. So, I was rolling through an area of the state that I had not previously been through, thanks to my usual section of highway being blocked off by some huge traffic accident that had unfortunately left a few people dead. I was having trouble navigating the roads after my phone ran out of battery and would not be able to plug the charger in. It was the worst timing ever. But I was an experienced truck driver, and I was not driving an 18-wheeler on that run, so I was free to take some of the smaller roads to find my way around. But even though I consider myself surprisingly good on the roads, there was a certain point that I found myself hopelessly lost, and I started to worry that I might not be making my shipping delivery deadline. That would mean disciplinary proceedings and whatnot, and I just could not afford those at all. So anyway i happen to see this one guy wandering down the side of the road so i slow my truck down wind down the window and ask him for directions the guy seems friendly enough and is more than willing to take a few minutes to give me all the information i need on how to make it back onto the main highways that headed south but then i start asking him if there's anywhere nearby that i would be able to get some lunch as it was getting towards one in the afternoon and I had only managed to get myself a pretty meager breakfast. The guy seems to think for a moment, scratching his head, taking an unusually long time to think of an answer to a question that usually takes just a few seconds. It is rare to be anywhere in West Virginia where there is not a Cracker Barrel within a few miles, so why he did not just point me in the direction of one of those was beyond me. When I pressed him a bit... He told me he knew of an old family-run place that had the best chicken fried steak in the entire county, maybe even the state. Suddenly all was forgiven. I might be a northerner, but I will be damned if I turn down a good chicken fried steak. All that was taking so long was for him to try and remember the best way that would take me there. Apparently, I had to go down some run-down, old dirt road, one which might get my truck stuck on it, which really would have left me screwed so after a minute, he gives me some detailed directions towards an old strip mall. He told me it was mostly abandoned, but the restaurant was still there, along with a few other smaller businesses, and not to pay any mind if the place seemed quiet during lunch, as it did much of its business in the early to late evening. I was happy enough, thanked the guy, then set off following the directions he had given me. It took me a little while to find the old strip mall the guy was talking about, It was honestly a little frustrating to drive past a couple of chain restaurants and whatnot, given that I was so hungry. But if I was not craving some of that country-style chicken fried steak, and if that was a family-run place, then all the better. The chain restaurant stuff just does not cut it compared to the real, home-style cooking. But eventually, I find this run-down old strip mall the guy seemed to be talking about, and it was little wonder the place was in such a state of disrepair. It was way off any highway. There was absolutely no signage for it. Literally nothing to let anyone know that it was even there. But even worse, I saw zero indication that there was any kind of restaurant open in any of the units. I was not about to give up so easily though, as I did see a place that had a big old sign over it saying something like Mama J's Country Kitchen, or some variation of that. So my hopes were restored a bit. That is when I see a guy step out of the door, going into the afternoon heat and staring over at my truck. I gave him away from the driver's side, overjoyed that I would finally found out that this place was real and maybe some decent food would be here soon. This was a lonely drive down from Connecticut after all. I figured he had not seen me do it. The sun was obscuring his vision or something, because he just continued to stare back at me. Anyway, I get out of my truck, lock the doors and start walking over to the restaurant. I call out to the guy about halfway across the parking lot asking if they were indeed open for business again the guy does not react he just keeps staring at me in a way that i now notice is distinctly unwelcoming something in my gut just told me to stop walking i had this creeping feeling all over my body like something was telling me that something was horribly wrong with this whole setup and no sooner had i started feeling that distinct vulnerability the guy reached behind his back and pulled something out of his back pocket and puts it on his head. I thought it was likely a woolly hat at first, but when he pulls it down, it's a balaclava. Then I noticed something else in his hand. It's a small revolver. I turn and start running back to my truck, and as I do, I see a few other guys emerging from the derelict units, each running towards my truck and trying to cut me off. Each had a weapon in their hand. Be it a knife or an iron bar, and seeing these just made me run even faster. Thank God I had gotten that gut feeling when I did, otherwise they would have made it to my truck far before I did. I threw the door open, jumped inside, and locked the cab behind me. Trembling as I rummaged in my pocket for the keys, the bandits surrounded the cab of my truck, hitting the chassis with their weapons and demanding I get out. Then the guy with the gun aimed the thing right at my face, through the windshield, screaming for me to get out of the truck. I had no choice but to do what I did. I gunned the engine and plowed through the bunch of them, knocking down those who did not jump out of the way in time. I leaned down in my seat and grabbed the wheel, out of pure instinct really, and again, I thank God that I did, because when I hit the guy with the gun, he let loose a single shot that shattered the windshield and struck the seat just above my head. I circled around the parking lot, expecting the next shot to come at any moment, but only the bandits that had gotten out of my way and the initial truck charge were chasing me. Two or three were just lying on the concrete rolling around in pain whilst holding their limbs. I think that is about the only thing that saved me. Having the presence of mind to just ram them instead of trying to reverse out of there. If that had been my choice, I might not be around to tell you this story at all. I got the hell out of that parking lot, speeding off blindly in the first direction I could until I found somewhere to safely park up and call the cops. The sheriff's deputy I spoke to told me to swing on by the department when I was able to so I could give a statement, and so I did, but not until I managed to get myself some lunch, as not even the terror of almost getting hijacked could dull my appetite. I guess that just makes me fat or whatever, but you guys need to appreciate just how hungry I truly was. Down at the department, however, I learned that I was not the first truck driver to be targeted by these bandits. How I had just been unlucky enough to ask directions from one of their kinfolk, who had directed me to the run-down strip mall just before calling his buddies to let them know I would be there. At least, that is the only conclusion we came to once I had described the guy I had asked directions from. The deputy just seemed to nod knowingly when I related this guy's physical description. I guess I'm just warning you guys to be incredibly careful when you're out on those roads. And although it seems like some tired old cautionary tale from your Facebook posting aunt, be careful when you are talking to strangers. There is no way of knowing just who they truly are. I'm a long-haul truck driver, so I am no stranger to the States, and I have seen things I cannot explain but this is by far the weirdest thing to ever happen to me. So, to get straight to the point, I was driving through Arizona, heading westbound on I-40. I had finally hit Flagstaff and go out at a truck stop and handled my business. As I left from Flagstaff, I ran by mile marker 185. It is about 10 miles from Flagstaff, Arizona. As I passed mile marker 185, there was what seemed to be a person hitchhiking. The only problem was, this guy was huge, easily 8 feet tall or so, looking straight into the passenger window of my semi-truck. On top of that, it seemed to be as wide as the truck from shoulder to shoulder. I passed the hitchhiker at 70 miles per hour, at least. I thought, probably about a half mile down the road, that I saw the same exact person or, or thing because, once again, I had passed what seemed to be the same figure. This kept happening every 20 miles down the road or so, even past mile marker 165. I saw it every few miles. After I passed mile marker 165, I did not see it anymore, though. It suddenly vanished, so I thought I was done with it. But I was dead wrong. I got down to mile marker 145. I had to take a leak, so I pulled over to the side of the road to handle my business. I was about halfway done when I heard an ear-piercing scream. It was probably a mix between what sounded like a deer and a human. As soon as I heard it, I started looking around, and just outside the halo of my headlights, I saw something. I couldn't tell you what it was. I was never more confused and scared in my life. I tried very hard in that moment to figure out what it was, even when I heard something flying. Suddenly, I heard a loud thump and sitting three feet away from me was a huge rock the size of a basketball. It had to at least have been 80 pounds or so. When I saw that, I pretty much got the heck out of there as fast as I could. That thing threw that rock at me with such force that when it hit the ground, it literally bounced back up into the air a few feet. I just was terrified. It landed only three feet away from me. I wasted little time trying to hop back into my truck and get away from whatever that thing was. As I passed it, it just stared me down, and I never saw it again. Can anyone please tell me what I saw? And thank you so much for sharing my story if you do. I've been a long-haul trucker for a good few years now. I find it enjoyable, to be honest. It just suits my lifestyle. I've never really been the most sociable person, so I really like the whole thing of it just being me with nothing but my stereo system and the open road for my company. My job has taken me to some incredible places as well. Things that regular 9-5 to office workers just never get to see from their dusty, dimly lit office spaces even those with the views from skyscrapers and stuff. They never see the landscape change, how the sun frames mountain ranges or how the moon shimmers off boundless lakes. Even with all the built-up areas, this country really is beautiful in some areas. Wyoming and Montana are some of my favorites, the mountain ranges and prairies being like picturesque postcards in places. But, and I mean no offense here, the Iowa cornfields get so tedious in places because there is literally nothing but cornfields as far as the eye can see. However, my least favorite place to drive in the entire country has to be Louisiana. Again, I mean absolutely no offense to any native sons of the Bayou State. I have had my good times there. I have had some of the best fried catfish I have ever tasted in little roadside diners while rolling through that place. But there is something inherently creepy about Louisiana, too. Maybe it's just the humidity, the gators, or the way the Cajuns can just switch from English to French on a dime and shut you right out of the conversation. The whole southern hospitality is as real as I am surely breathing, and I really have met some of the nicest, most generous people in the entire country down in Louisiana. I am talking the kind of people that would give you their last dollar or the shirt off their backs, but I guess it is just a place of extremes because I also met some of the least welcoming and quite frankly most terrifying people I've ever met in my whole life down there. And this here is a story of one of those encounters, one that keeps me up at nights, and that takes a few glasses of vodka just to shut the memories out. So this one time, I'm rolling along the highway late in the evening, way behind schedule on a shipment due in Dallas, Texas. The tight timing meant it looked like I was going to have to pull another brutal all-nighter to get my load to the depot on time. But if that were going to be the case, I would have to stop at some roadside crawfish shack to fill up on greasy food and coffee, so I had the energy to keep on going. So I turned my truck off on the road, the first place I see. This place with a glowing luminous sign that flashed with half the letters missing, but it was all I needed to see. Rustin' Crawfish Shack, the place was called and it was a little more than a collection of sheet metal shacks at the side of the road, if I'm honest. But hell, those were the kind of places where some Cajun mama bear has been making some of that delicious po' boy for the last 30 years. And God, I just love what those people can do with a few shrimps and a slice of lemon. So, I order up my food and get it to go. And then I sit outside to wolf it down before I get back on the road. When some older guy comes up to me and asks me where I'm from, I was friendly, and he seemed friendly as well, and I do not mean to be judgmental here, but he had very, very unusual appearance. He dressed normally, had close cropped hair, but he was very, very skinny. Like unnaturally skinny. Like he was just skin and bones with no muscle keeping his body upright whatsoever. I tell him up north originally, but I am based in Arkansas for my job currently and we start just casually talking about the area and its history and whatnot. He was a nice enough guy, but I had to excuse myself, telling him if I did not get this load to Dallas Depot in time, that I would be in a big world of trouble. It is the kind of thing that guys lose their jobs over, so I could not really afford to play fast and loose with my timing. And in my particular case, the risk was extra high, since I had high-value loads of electronics new TVs and such, and every day a delivery is late, the depot can fine a trucking company and dramatically lower their bottom line. He puzzles the thought over for a moment and then told me he thought he could help me out and to wait here for just a moment while he fetched something from a back room of the shack. At first, I thought it was going to be some pills that would help me stay up all night, but what he brought out of the crawfish shack was something that sends chills through me, even thinking about it today. The guy returned with a piece of cypress wood in his hand, like a bare piece, looking like it had been freshly cut from a tree. He had me follow him over to my truck. Out of the sight of the rest of the crowd that was gathering outside the shack, once we were alone he pulls out this huge knife and tells me to carve my name into the wood, my full name or it won't work. It was uh, something weird that I've never heard about. I was just about to ask him what it was when he shushes me hands me the knife, and tells me to obey. The blade looks jagged and slightly bent, like it has been forged or something. That was creepy enough on its own, but it was only when I take the knife from his hand do I see the handle and what it's made of. Y'all ever heard of a jawbone knife? It is literally what it sounds like. The blade is obviously metal, but the handle was made of an animal's jawbone. Some places it can be made of bear or cougar's jaw, with the teeth kind of blunted, so it doesn't rip up your fingers. Sounds weird, but they make for a great grip, and they were popular back in the old frontier days. But this jawbone knife that had been passed to me was something different. There was something horribly familiar about the size of the teeth, the way only one of them seemed to be pointed, while the others were flat or jaggedly cupped. I thought it might have been a pig's jaw at first, but the actual jawline was way too thin for that, and it was with my terror and with my absolute horror that I finally realized what I was looking at. It was human. That jaw had once belonged to a human being. I thought to say something, to ask him where the hell he had gotten his hands on such a thing. I mean I wanted to shove him away and throw his wooden board right back at him, but I'm telling you. When a guy has handed you a knife that you strongly suspect is made from a freakin' human being, you are not going to be anything but polite to him. So I did as I was asked. I carved my name into the wood and then handed him back the knife, all while he seemed to take immense amount of pleasure knowing how afraid I was. He then tells me that he is going to bury the piece of wood out in the bayou somewhere, and that once he had done that, I would get to Dallas with my load on time, and that I would not have to worry about a thing. So long story short... I did get to Dallas on time. I was wide awake for the entire journey. I made every exit and turn just like I was supposed to, but I was only so focused on the journey ahead because I was honestly terrified of what that knife was made out of and what I had even done. So I suppose, in a manner of speaking, the little ritual did work. Maybe not in the way he had intended it to, where some weird bayou spirits had taken care of me and, you know, maybe, like, looked over me, but it was the thing that spurred me on to get the hell away from that crawfish shack and to my destination on time. The memory of this stormy night still sends chills up my spine to this day and goes to show that you cannot trust anyone, no matter how much you think you know about them. I was 21 years old at the time, and had just graduated from Bible college. I moved up to my first job as a youth pastor in rural Indiana. It was a ridiculously small town. There was a gas station, a small coffee shop, a school, a good-sized park, and the small church I had just landed a job at. Things were tough at first, because I am originally from the southeast, and now I lived hundreds of miles away in a place where I knew absolutely no one. That is, until I met him. His name was Ray, and we hit it off quickly because he oversaw the elementary school kids at the church, and I primarily worked with the teenagers. Since we were both considered to be the youth department, we would often find ourselves having lunch meetings, going on walks after work to talk about life, and would watch TV shows at each other's house. There was one night Ray slept over at my house to watch a movie with me. And I was a bit grossed out to see him come out of my bathroom after changing into his PJs. It was nothing but Tidy Whitey's. At first, I was glad to have a friend, but after a while, I felt more and more uncomfortable. The first thing that would make someone uneasy was Ray's appearance. He stood about six foot six and had exceptionally long, slender arms and legs, but his torso was very heavy. It almost seemed like the body of that cartoon frog in the old Looney Tunes cartoons. His face was a little chubby, nearly bald, and had glasses. You think a guy that was that big would have a deep voice, but it could not have been farther from the truth. He had a very high-pitched voice and spoke to me and the others like a mother would speak to a small child. Also, Ray had a lot of ticks where he would randomly convulse his head and shoulders and he would stick out a seemingly seven inch long tongue when he would have these random muscle spasms. I ignored them the best I could, because I've honestly always been one to judge people by their character and not their physical appearance. Plus, Ray helped me move in and assisted me in painting my new place, so I felt bad for judging a guy like that, but it was disturbing nonetheless. Even though his appearance and ticks made me feel weird, It was his weird obsession with me that really made my heart sink. He would constantly ask me to hang out every waking moment. There would be times I would go to the bathroom and come out to find 11 or 12 missed calls from him. Most of the time when he reached out, I felt obligated to go, but it was always weird. Whether it was sitting with him and talking for a few hours while we worked at his mom's cake shop, inviting me to watch some lame TV shows instead of manly ones or interrupting my video game sessions with a call to talk about how much he wants babies one day, all these interactions were pushing me away. There was even one time where he asked me to go shopping with him, and I told him that I only had time for the one store he suggested, because I had a teen church service that night. He said, okay, that's fine. After we stopped, we got back into his car. He locked the doors and drove me around, laughing and saying, you're not going anywhere. You're staying with me everyone loves ray after an hour of his maniac driving and driving around aimlessly blasting music i yelled take me back to the church ray got enraged that i yelled and he punched me in the junk and it hurt so bad i squeaked with whatever voice i had left i can't stand you anymore and he was quiet for the rest of the drive back ray had driven me around so long that i ended up arriving late to the church for my teen service To make things even worse, there were a bunch of angry parents who had been waiting to drop off their students for nearly 45 minutes. At that moment, I knew I was done. I had had enough. The next time Ray asked me to do something, I told him I could not. I was done with Ray, but he was not done with me. He called and texted almost every night with nonstop crying and begging. It was so unnatural sounding for a 27-year-old man. The best way I can describe it was like a middle school girl begging their boyfriend to stay after a breakup. And then the sadness turned to passive aggressiveness when we would see each other at church. There were even times on Sunday morning during the pastor's sermon that I would look over and Ray would be staring at me with this creepy, expressionless face. He was not listening or paying attention to the message at all. He just sat there glaring at me with this glazed expression of pain and numbness. But I could not help but feel he was fantasizing about something insidious. Eventually, Ray quit his job at the church, got a school teacher job, and seemed to make new friends. I thought to myself, finally, Ray has new friends to pester. I was in the clear. It felt as if a huge dark cloud had been lifted, and the sun shined on me once again. A year had passed by and I was now married and had my first child. I had almost completely forgotten about Ray. where out of the blue. He called me and asked to catch up. He seemed a lot cooler, like maybe his new teacher friends have really helped him become normal. We grabbed lunch and he asked if I wanted to come to his school's football game. I thought Ray wants to watch football? Finally, something manly. My wife was going to be out of state with our baby visiting family, so I thought what the heck, and I agreed to go. While we were at the game with his teacher friends, it began to rain shortly into the second quarter. Before we knew it, there was a full-blown thunderstorm with high winds so the school announced that the game was cancelled and sent everyone back to their cars. When Ray and I reached our vehicles, a tornado siren began to blare, and because I lived nearly an hour away, he suggested I come back to his house to seek shelter. Tornadoes in the Midwest are not something to mess around with, so I naively agreed and followed him home. This turned out to be one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Such a big mistake that I would rather have taken my chances with the tornadoes. I could barely see, and what should have taken 5 minutes took 15 minutes. When we arrived, Ray showed me around. The house was a little creepy and ornate looking, with a lot of old dolls and thrift store looking knickknacks. Even though the scenery was weird, the evening started off fine. We watched some home improvement shows, had some snacks, and some drinks. It was a relaxing way to get away from the storm and beat driving 20 miles an hour in heavy rain for several hours so I thought at first. Sometime around 12.30am the storm was still raging, so we decided to turn in for the night, and I asked Ray if I could have a pillow and blanket to sleep on the couch in the living room. He said, no, let's sleep in my room, there's plenty of space in there, but I told him that that couch would be more than comfortable for me. He kept insisting over and over and over again, so eventually I reluctantly agreed. The floor in his room was so hard, and all he gave me was this tiny Winnie the Pooh kid's blanket and a flat pillow. I was tossing and turning for what felt like hours. At 2 a.m., Ray's voice spoke in the pitch-black room. You know, you can come up here with me in the bed if you want. There's plenty of room. I said no firmly and kept tossing and turning. About 30 minutes later, he asked, Are you sure? It's really fine. I do not know what came over me but I was so tired, and my back hurt so badly that I hopped into the bed. After laying there on my back staring into the darkness, I noticed that he kept trying to scoot close to me. I figured he was just asleep, so I inched away from him just a bit. This happened several times until I was basically hanging off the bed. He scooted one more time and I turned my back to him. I held still to act like I was sleeping. It got quiet and then out of nowhere I feel his long skinny arms wrap around me, and he pulls me into his flabby chest. Ray began squeezing me like a python and rubbed his sandpapery cheeks on my forehead. I shot out of bed, somehow breaking free from his grasp. I grabbed my pillow and blanket and laid on the couch after flushing the toilet to play it off like I had to go to the restroom. I was counting down the seconds until the storm ended so I made my mad dash to the car and got the hell out of there. My mind was racing as I thought about what the hell just happened in there. I was so repulsed by what Ray did to me and I felt filthy for even being in the same vicinity of his bed. I lay there on the sofa beside the sliding glass doors in the pitch black living room. There is absolutely zero light except for the occasional flash of lightning, and the sound of the downpour and thunder was deafening. This is the moment that still gives me chills and nightmares to this day. As I lay there, staring into the pitch blackness, back facing the window, so I could watch towards Ray's room, The lightning flashed and I about soiled myself. I kid you not. I see the black silhouette of Ray standing in the doorway. A few minutes passed by and me frozen like a statue and my heart felt like it was going to beat out of my chest. I just stood there staring back. I had to act like I was asleep. I could not even move a muscle. My eyes would refuse to close, though. The lightning flashed a second time and I almost passed out to the sight I can only describe as a fat slender man that suddenly appeared right above me. My blood ran cold, holding my breath as he bent down with this weird lullaby he was humming. He sniffed my hair and smiled with a little chuckle and went back to his room, whispering to himself, I'll see you again. That was the biggest nope in my entire life. As soon as I heard his door shut, I sprang up in an instant, ran down the stairs into the basement, out the back door, and sprinted to my car through the pouring rain. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up as I felt like he was right behind me, as if his long arms could wrap around me at any moment. As I tried to crank the car, I could not get it to start. I fiddled with my keys too much and locked up the steering wheel until I heard the sound of the engine firing up. As I looked up the drive, where he was once again, standing in the back doorway like Slenderman. I have never driven so fast in my life. My wife and I moved away to work at a larger church in the city and things have been a lot less eventful, thank God. He even tried to call several times before we moved away, but I never answered. Eventually, the calls and texts stop, and I have never spoken to Ray again. I do not know why I was so naive. I guess I just always try to see the best in people, but I cannot help but wonder what Ray would have done if I fell asleep in his house. Maybe that's what he was thinking about when he stared at me in the church those days before he left. It just goes to show that you can never trust someone even if you think you understand them fully. Be careful out there. Watch out for predators, because they come from the places you would least expect them. Hello. I have a short and perhaps interesting story of something I cannot explain that happened to me while hunting. I live among the ridges of southeastern Kentucky. One morning in the spring turkey season... I went hunting at a large hunting club I belonged to. I woke up quite early and drove the short drive there, arriving at around 5am so I could get there before the turkey wake up, hoping to catch one leaving the roost. I walked down the large field that is near the entrance that sometimes has crops for the wildlife, but is currently mowed short. From a perspective, it is a very rural area, from the ridge top adjacent to this field in one direction Town is about five miles away, and, on the other, there are tree-covered ridges as far as you can see. So, hoping to catch some turkey going to this field or the nearby pond, I sit at the edge of this field, in near-complete darkness with my Remington 1187 shotgun in my lap. I sit here for probably about 30 minutes when I hear something approaching on the opposite edge where the field ends, which is probably no more than only 25 yards away. I can see the silhouette of something walking through the brambles. It is a four-legged and stocky looking thing. Probably one and a half to two and a half feet at the shorter. It does not look like anything native to Kentucky, but I just sit there and try to make it out. After just a few seconds of mulling about, it disappears quietly back into the briar patch from where it came. Then I see three or four small shapes running around in the field, almost like they're playing. I thought they were rabbits or something at first, based on their size. I could see them moving around, but again, it was quite dark out. Just a new moon and a tad cloudy. Here is the weird part, though. I am wearing a bright headlamp I used to walk in, and I've had off since I sat down. I don't want to let anything know I'm here, but my curiosity got the best of me. I look at the little shapes, reach up and turn on my headlamp, and there is nothing there. Weird. I assume my eyes are playing tricks on me somehow. I turn my lamp off and continue waiting. A few minutes would go by, maybe about five, and there they are again. So once again I look at them. Very slowly I reach up to my headlamp, making sure they're all still there. I flick it on, and yet there's nothing there. Now I am really confused as most animals freeze when they are unaware of your presence and are suddenly blinded by a light, and I heard no movement at all. So, once again, I turned it off and waited. I am not scared at all at this point having a semi-auto 12-gauge filled with some high-powered turkey load. For the third time, I see these shapes come out again and start moving. I turn on my light and nothing. Now, I must know what is going on. So, with my light still on, I walk over to the patch with thick brambles. I do not see anything, but as soon as I make it to the edge, something or someone bursts out and tears down the valley away from me at full speed, making this weird squealing noise. I hunted there many times before and after, and i have never seen anything like this. My best guess is it would be wild hogs, but there shouldn't be any in this area, at least to my knowledge, and they leave obvious signs that I have never seen. The little shapes I saw in the dark, they just vanished without a second when I turned on my light. Thanks for sharing my story if you choose to do so, Swamp Dweller. Much love and keep it up. I would love to know in the comments if anybody has any answers to what this may have been. Hey Swamp Dweller. I do not have much of a story but a handful of experiences. I am in my late 20s now and I have lived my whole life in the Midwest. Living in the Midwest is not that bad but there are some times that I have felt very creeped out. When I let my dogs out in the middle of the night, somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m., there are some nights that there is just absolutely no sound at all. No wind, no insect noises, no bats flying around, and no cars driving on one of the highways a few miles away. During these nights, I feel my fight or flight kick up a bit which is hard to do when you're trying to get your dogs to go to the bathroom, and they just stand in one spot stiffing the ground. I have heard before that when everything is quiet around you, there is a predator nearby. So, on these nights, I try to be as silent as I can, while still hurrying my dogs to do their business. Sometimes it happens on a trash night, so I am taking it down to the curb. I am trying to hurry as much as I can as I live across from a field, and while I do not hear anything coming from the field, I try not to have my back to it for too long. It is always even worse when there is corn or something else that is tall growing. Another experience is when I am again, letting my dogs out. It is somewhere between 1 to 4 a.m., and in the distance, I can hear the wild pack of dogs that roams around where I live. I hate hearing them as it pulls at my heart, both with fear of them and concern for them. My dad always said when I mentioned them that they will not come near here. For some extra context, we do not live in the full country, but we do not live in the city or suburbs either. It's a pretty rural area. My dogs like to bark at everything they hear when we go out, so I always worried about how this might attract the wild pack when they are roaming closer to us than normal. There have been a handful of times when I have taken my dogs out, and as they go about their business, I stare at the sky. A handful of these times, I have noticed a light in the sky that flashes very slowly. I know that this is not one of those towers with the lights that blink on and off. For one, the light is way too high, like an airplane high. I also know that it's not an airplane or a helicopter as there is no noise accompanying it. Plus, an airplane has three lights that all blink with a certain tempo. I know it is probably a far-off star or something. The odd thing to me is how entrancing it was this light blinked like it had a slow pulse these are my experiences they may not be in your face scary but in the abstract they were at the very least creepy swamp dweller if you read these experiences thank you so much everyone should remember if it suddenly gets quiet around you you might not be alone Hey, so I have never written about my experiences with the outdoors, but I need some answers or opinions on something I encountered. So last night, I was heading back from my girlfriend's house. She lives in a very rural area. The day before, she and I crashed my car into a fence post on the same road due to an unknown reason. I was driving, and when we were going around a corner on the gravel road, we were not going faster than 15 or 20 miles per hour. There were no skid marks or objects in the road to cause an accident, but as we got out of the car to assess the damage, we heard a god-awful scream in the woods. It sounded like a bobcat killing a woman. It was loud enough to hear over the rumble of the truck engine as well. We sat in my vehicle for at least two hours, and while we were waiting for help, we smelt something that was terrible. I'll never forget it. The only smells that I can use to describe it are that of rotting flesh, wet dog, sewage water, and burning hair, all rolled inside of a dead animal. That would best describe it. As I was making my way home from her house, it was about 9pm and dark with no street lights. In my dim, barely working headlights, I saw this thing. It was about the size of a large lab, if I had to guess. It seemed to have no fur, but it was dirty white. I could not tell, but it looked like it was injured, and me being the animal lover I am, I had to stop and roll down my passenger side window and whistle at it. As soon as I rolled down the window, I smelled that horrible smell again. So I grabbed my spotlight and shined it on the thing, and I kid you not, its neck snapped around and looked at me with those piercing yellow eyes. That is when I tore out of there like a bat out of hell. I am about halfway down the dirt road when I spot a blacked out newer GMC just sitting there on the side of the road with no lights on other than the glow of a cigarette in the cab. Being terrified as I was, I blow straight past them, and as I'm passing them, they cut on their headlights and start after me. I have seen that movie before, so I take a few wrong turns to see if he is truly following me. So I take three wrong turns, and he is still riding my tail with his high beams on. I am panicking at this point, so I call my dad saying someone is following me. My father says to take him to the back gate, so I floor down a single lane dirt road trying to lose this guy. As I make a quick turn onto my road, I black out my lights and see him blow straight past me on the road I was previously on. I meet my dad at the gate, and he has a gun in hand. I still have so many questions about what happened last night. I do not know if they are connected or a series of creepy events. If y'all have any questions or answers, please let me know in the comments down below. This happened in rural Georgia, by the way. I am a 30-year-old teacher teaching in a rural area. And by rural, I mean somewhere in the middle of a dense jungle. At first... I thought it would be ridiculous to have a school constructed in a place like this. But here in North Borneo, it is not much of an implausibility. My story consists of a two-part anecdote. I came from my ancestors who were believed to practice witchcraft. So, it might have been exceptionally long ago, but people still follow their ancestors to this day. These people were called Babolian. They are inputted to have supernatural gifts back in the day, including the ability to communicate with other entities from the other realms. Mind you, this happened before religions were introduced in our place. However, these gifts, or what some people call the curse, were passed through generations. And although we are not much talked about these days, they still could be observed here and there within our family. My siblings, of course, were the Chosen Ones. My earliest encounter with supernatural entities could be traced back to when I was living with my grandparents. Since we lived in a low socio-economic state, my parents had to burn the midnight oil grinding stone just to provide for us. We then had to be taken care of by our grandparents, who built a small hut on their farm to live at. I remembered the moon was full during this one night and all of us had to put ourselves into the slumberland. There was this loud howling that awakened me exactly right outside of my hut, so I decided to peek through a small slit between the walls. To my surprise, my gaze struck upon a fair glowing white wolf howling at the beautiful full moon. It was relatively bigger than a normal wolf, just with crimson red eyes, and its fur was one thing that mesmerized me. It was as if it was glowing. It reflected the full moon's illumination that glows so gracefully and the area became as bright as daylight. That was when my grandparents woke up and told me to continue my sleep. Later, when I asked them what it was, they told me it was the spirit of the jungle, and I was lucky to be able to see it. Fast forward to where I am now. My ability to sense and see things other people could not have long been addressed by myself. It is already so normal for me to stay in a cemetery alone at nighttime during our all-soul festival to have the place cleaned. My colleagues are aware of this too. I remember during this one time when we were at school, and the water supply system was broken. There was a small creek located at the foothills, where we usually go for our bath. It was dusk, and we were only accompanied by the light of our headlights. It was about normal until the day after. During recess time, we all gathered at the canteen to talk about how we needed the water supply system fixed, so we do not have to take our bath at the river again. My colleague was shocked when I asked him if he saw the woman and her child who were there at the river last night with us. To his horror, the canteen lady, a local there, overheard our conversation. She began telling us this. There was a pregnant woman who passed away a very long time ago, right at that river we usually go to. I was not amused by this, but with a smile, I simply replied to her. Well, the child is all grown up now and seems to be happy with his mother. I can see their creeped out look when I said these words. This year, when the pandemic hit, it was hard news for our country. Schools must be closed for a few months. Regardless of this, I have applied for an interview for a new position in my career journey at the beginning of this year. When schools were temporarily open during August and September, the supervisors from the upper level decided to conduct my interview at the school. It was Friday and normally I will drive back with my other colleagues out from the jungle to our hometown. But I was so tired from all the interviews and the presentations that I chose to stay at the school instead. This time, alone. So I have the whole school to inspect just for myself during that weekend. I remembered it was exactly midnight when I was watching the television, and my stomach suddenly growled for food. So I went to the kitchen and fried myself up some nice chicken drumsticks. That is when I heard someone knocking on the front door. I tried to brush it off, but not knowing who or what it was is weird. This time it was different though, I just got this vibe. Even though the house was fully lit with light, I could feel this tremendous darkness creeping up my surroundings. My vision is still fine, but my feeling was not. It was as if the whole world was entirely consumed by pitch black darkness and nothing can ever be seen or felt for. The feeling stayed for a couple of seconds and mind you, It was not terrifying at all i was not scared but i just felt so depressed when i woke up the next day i was told by one of the villagers that someone had passed away the night before during the exact same time i heard the knocking on the door and this believe it or not was not the first time i saw or felt someone announcing their death I'd like to start this off by saying that I'm a 19-year-old girl about 5'5", weighing 110 pounds. To many people, I'm considered tiny and approachable. To give a little backstory, I have worked at a pharmacy for the last year and a half, mainly doing grunt work like garbage runs, filing, making boxes and the like, along with my normal prescription filing duties. My office is in a pretty sketchy part of downtown in a major city. It is on the third floor of a four-story building that faces a busy road in the front. It's an older run-down residential area where the garbage bins are fenced in next to the underground parking entrance, directly across the alley, That the bins are in is a worn yellow house that rarely sees the light through the overgrown trees and vegetation in the yard behind the gate i never really saw anyone in or around that house during my daily garbage runs though i did notice two exceptionally large cane corso dogs that were caged on the rickety deck i kept getting that feeling of being watched during one of my more recent trips on taking out the bins i hesitantly glanced towards the creepy yellow house to find nothing out of the ordinary now i am an avid horror fan I used to be a little spooked by cliches like creepy houses and I would spend my days being paranoid over everyday circumstances, constantly looking behind my shoulder and being suspicious of everyone that moves around me. So I chalked it up to me just being paranoid. The feeling never subsided though. So as I rushed to finish the job, I took one last peek behind me and saw a very tall, slender man with unkempt shaggy gray hair, wearing a tattered white tank top with holes and stains peering out the bay window over the deck and straight at me. At this point, I had never seen someone living there and I had never seen anyone at all around the house. My customer service instinct kicked in and I gave him the best polite smile I could form. He did not return it and continued to burn his eyes into my being. After what seemed like a few hours, I slowly retreated out of sight, never breaking eye contact. This was just my first encounter with this man, but by God, do I wish it were my only one. The next few times were normal, with me glancing every now and then to see nothing but the pitch black inside of the house and a few birds fluttering around the yard until the day that has burned into my brain forever. It was a hot and sunny Tuesday, and I had worn a navy dress to keep me cool during the day. The time comes for me to do my garbage trip, and I grab my box cutting knife and slipped it into my dress pocket. Pulling my small cart of cardboard and garbage around the fence and into the partially enclosed area of bins, I look across the alleyway and see the man standing on his deck. He walks over to the cages and lets the dogs out, and they sprint down the stairs of the deck and up to the chain link fence, surrounding the yard and begin barking ferociously in my direction. After getting refocused on my job, I periodically peered over my shoulder and out of the corner of my eye to keep tabs on this man. Until the last time I did so, I could no longer see him standing on his deck, but rather, he was slinking along the sidewalk outside of his fence. In the shadows of the trees from his yard, he paced back and forth, about 30 feet in each direction before spinning back around to go to the other way. I began panicking and rushing, catapulting the cardboard into the bin, and that is when I heard the sound. Rocks from the gravel alley being scuffled under heavy footsteps. I mustered up all the courage I could and turned my entire body to face the man, my hand in my pocket gripping the knife tightly, ready to defend myself. To my horror, the man was less than ten feet in front of me, head down, staring at the ground with one hand behind his back and one in his pocket. As he closed the gap between us, I heard a voice from behind me. To my left, I turned to investigate the voice. It was a young man, a tall, gawky man probably around 23 or 24. I recognized him from the cafe on the first floor. He had a garbage bag in his hand. He asked me, is that your cart? I glanced towards the cart and dumbfounded I responded with a, yes? He struck up a conversation with me and came close and rested his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eyes and whispered, come with me. He grabbed my cart and began walking towards the building and this is when I turned back to look at the man who had scurried back across the alley to his fence, scrambling to open the latch while shoving something into his pocket and cursing under his breath, shooting daggers at the cafe man. When we made it back into the parking lot adjacent to our building, he stopped and said I was on my way to the bins when I noticed the man coming towards you. I hoped asking you about your car and being near you would deter him from whatever he was thinking of doing. Now, you be safe and bring a partner every time you are down here. Or you can come grab me if no one else can help. We said our goodbyes and I thanked him profusely. I never went down alone again after telling my co-workers what had happened. To the young men in the cafe, at the time your small talk seemed meaningless and forced. But it very well could have been the reason that I am still alive today. So thank you for being my hero and saving me from a possible life-threatening attack. I'm a retired parole officer with a large agency. During the first part of 2000, we moved our office to the downtown area of the city to be closer to the courthouses, the building that we leased had been a bank. It was a four-story complex with a basement, coal chute, and three steam boilers for heating. The building was all but suited our needs. I was assigned the responsibility of coordinating the move, which took several weeks. The building had two vaults, one with a large round vault door, which was where the cash and other valuables were kept. The other vault was a large room with a metal fireproof door. We used this room for our briefings and other meetings. It was large enough to accommodate 50 people or so. As the months passed, strange things started happening in the building to different people. Things being moved, feelings of a presence or cold spots in the building by many, many different people. Other things like apparitions and sightings and noises that could not be explained were happening a lot and people were even being affected physically. This continued through our first year in the building and grew to such a magnitude that I was approached by the civilian staff to talk to our chief about doing something to eradicate the problem. The reason I was approached was that I was the safety coordinator for the office along with all of my other duties as a police officer. As a parole officer in this state, we are also category one police officers with full peace officer powers and we wear many hats one of the requests i received was from a native american woman who knew a shaman in the area and requested that the building be cleaned by burning sage well i had issues with this request but the people being affected by whatever was going on seemed to be genuine these people were not only our employees but they were also friends and they were looking for help i knew that if i took this story and request to our chief That he would most likely laugh me out of his office fortunately i had a pretty solid relationship with him so i picked the right time and one morning walked into his office and presented the request to him just as i expected he got a good laugh out of it he then decided to share this with our director whom i also knew well both got a great laugh out of it at my expense as it turned out the chief denied my request and i was sent off with my tail between my legs Knowing that the problem still existed, I went to my staff and explained what had happened with the chief and went on to tell them that whatever they decide to do is up to them. Just keep it to themselves so for a while, things quieted down. We did not cleanse the building just yet since everyone thought things were getting back to normal with no unusual incidents. Then, one evening, while I was on the third floor with my female partner getting ready to go on patrol, we heard the door from the stairs open and a considerable amount of noise that sounded like our maintenance people coming up to clean, which was normal for that time of night. Things were rattling clanging etc we both called out to them and let them know we were in the building but no one responded the noise kept up and we called out again but still no response that is when we both looked at each other and gave each other the look of oh crap what's going on guns drawn we headed out into the building to find absolutely no one there no equipment no nothing we searched the entire building and found not a single soul no animals no rats not even a bug No one was there at all. Both of us got the hell out of there and went on our patrol. We took our individual patrol cars home that night rather than return to the office. We followed up the next day with the maintenance staff who assured us they were not there that night. Things went back to normal for a couple of weeks. A former officer of ours who had left the department to start her own EMS service paid me a visit while she was in town on business. I related the story about the building to her, and she became extremely interested in it. She asked if she could come back one evening while she was still in town and take pictures of different parts of the building because if there were supernatural entities, they sometimes show up as orbs in the photographs. I agreed, and a couple of evenings later, she arrived with a camera. Another officer wanted to join us, so like three little kids, we turned off all the lights in the building and started taking flash pictures on all floors. These were the days before digital cameras were available, so we used the disposable Kodak camera. We took several pictures, and just as she thought, many of the photos had orbs in them. This was very freaky. Now, I do not know if this has any correlation but soon after taking those pictures the unusual activity started up again and this time with greater intensity and frequency one night while one of our sergeants was securing the building he was in the basement where the vault is that we use for meetings we had just turned off all the lights in that room and were working our way down the hallway past a kitchen that we use for breaks. Suddenly, the lights he had just turned off in the meeting room came back on, then went off and repeated this continually. Papers and other articles began flying in the room as well. This sent him running from the basement and out the front door for the rest of the night. He reported this to a very select group of people, which included his lieutenant who laughed at him when he heard the story. The following is what we call instant justice. A few nights later, that very lieutenant that had laughed at the sergeant's experience was in the very basement doing the same activities as the sergeant. As the lieutenant was securing the lights, he walked by the kitchen area, turned out those lights, and began walking down the long hallway toward the door that leads to the stairs to take you upstairs and through the front door. Before he even got to the door at the end of the hall, all hell broke loose in the kitchen. The lights came on and off repeatedly. Pots, pans, eating utensils, plates, etc. began flying across the room making a horrendous noise. Well, he beat feet out of there as quickly as he could. He is still not returned and will not go back to that place at night. So now, we come full circle back to my office, the same location that my partner and I had heard the noises thinking it was the maintenance people. I had been in the office earlier, getting ready to go on patrol on the evening shift. My sergeant's office is directly around the corner, maybe five feet away from my door. Prior to me leaving, I bid her a goodbye and took off. She was the only person in the office now and it was dark. Suddenly, she saw someone walk into my office. It was no one else she recognized, so she called out to the male figure who did not respond. Before I go any further, it should be noted that there have been occurrences where someone has snuck into our building for whatever reason in the past. The sergeant drew her weapon and gave pursuit. She later went on to tell me that the male figure was wearing what she can describe as black Florsheim shoes with black slacks, and as she followed his torso, it began to turn to a haze. The apparition continued to walk through my desk and disappeared she moved her office immediately after that experience. I stayed where I was. This was the last straw. So I went to the staff and wanted to do the cleansing and gave them the go ahead. One weekend after our shaman came in, he walked through the building with our staff, pointing out particularly troubling areas of the building. She would not go into detail, but related that certain people were going to meet with some type of tragedy. She then cleansed the building by burning sage, and after that, we haven't really had any trouble. This was New Year's Eve of 1994. I was a senior in high school, my friends and I would party hop from one another every weekend. We were in a very big hurry to get to a certain keg party before all the beer ran out. We had already been drinking for the last hour since we found a homeless guy to buy us a case of beer. This was the way we usually got our booze. It was not hard to find some street guy happy to get a free bottle for himself. The case was quickly running out, and we were all eager to keep our buzzes going. It was about an hour before midnight, and we were still a good two miles away from the party. My friend who was driving decided to take a shortcut through the downtown area of our city. Downtown was usually dead this time of night, and this night was no different. We were stopped at a red light a few blocks away from where a Mustang and a motorcycle were waiting for the light to change. Their light changed at the same time as ours, and we could tell the Mustang and motorcycle were racing each other. It was about a 100-yard race to the next light. They were running head-to-head at first, but the bike quickly pulled in front. And what I could only assume was them showing off, the guy on the bike popped the wheelie while continuing to pull ahead of the Mustang at the time. I cannot say I was impressed by this clown show, but we drove slowly and hung back, watching it all unfold. The bike was about three car lengths ahead when he lowered back to two wheels and lost control soon after, swerving to the left and into the path of the Mustang. The driver of the Mustang had no chance of stopping in time and collided and rolled over the bike and its rider. If I had to guess, I would say the car was going around 85 miles an hour. My friend slammed on the brakes just in time for us to watch the rider being spit out from the car. The motorcycle had somehow flipped over the hood of the car and buried itself in the windshield. Both drivers were more than likely killed instantly. The Mustang quickly lost speed and slowly rolled to a stop against the left-hand curb no one in my car said a word we were so shocked and all we could do was watch the scene waiting and hoping someone would move but nothing happened after sitting in silence for several minutes i quietly leaned forward in my seat and told my friend to take me home and to call the police he did not speak or face me he simply put the car into gear and made a right turn what happened after i was dropped off i really don't know i can say for myself witnessing that caused a large shift in the way i lived my life from then on some people may ask why we did not try to render aid to those two men. They do have a good argument, but I can only say that I personally was far too freaked out to help anyone. And I had no skills at all, no CPR training, nothing. Because of this, I wanted to be anywhere other than there with these two people. When my friends and I spoke about the incident a few days later, it never entered the conversation. It was all just a given in our minds that they were both dead. According to the news the following day, our assumptions were correct. Both men had died instantly. The driver of the Mustang was a 19-year-old kid. He was almost beheaded by the impact of the motorcycle. That night marked the end of my careless drinking and partying. After we returned to school, I began focusing on my schoolwork and impending graduation. A couple of other guys carried on as usual, and their lives ended in varying levels of disappointment and loss. Focusing on my future paid off greatly, and that was only because of how I altered the way I was living and my life priorities. Despite the tragedy that occurred that night, it showed me in clear detail how living your life in such a reckless way could end so badly. Continuing the path I was on, I feel, really would have meant those young men lost their lives for nothing, and that is truly the tragedy. I'm a 22-year-old female, and I've been with my boyfriend, a 21-year-old male, for almost eight years. In the spring of 2019, we decided to finally get an apartment and move in together. We're both college students and do not have a ton of money, so our options were limited. While searching, I came across a relatively cheap studio apartment in downtown Minneapolis, only a five-minute bus ride from my college. After talking it over, we decided that this was the place. While it was in a sketchy neighborhood, we were smart kids and knew how to keep safe. Our parents were a little nervous, but nevertheless supportive. We moved in two weeks before my 21st birthday. We were so excited to finally have a place of our own. It did not matter how small or dingy. Anyway, as time went on, we began to realize why the apartment was so cheap. Often, we would need our apartment to be fumigated for roaches, appliances would not work, druggies would break into the building, and packages would be stolen. All of this was upsetting, but things that could be ignored. Things were going fine until summer of 2020. Over the summer, my boyfriend and I decided to move in to my parents while keeping our apartment. With the pandemic raging, we knew we would want to be able to see our families and thought the communal living would be the best and safest choice. While we were gone, new tenants had moved in. When we came back in early August, we discovered that the couple across the hall from us had moved and a new woman had taken her place. We will call this woman Nancy. Nancy was a middle-aged woman. I would like to say early 30s, but with the drugs we later came to find out she was doing, it was really hard to tell her real age, seeing as they had made her age quite a bit. It took a while for us to realize that our previously quiet neighbors had moved and Nancy had taken their place. After passing her in the hallway and watching her enter her apartment, we came to understand, but that's when things got weird. We noticed a man coming around the apartment late at night. He was not a tenant and made it clear by banging on the outside door. He would yell and kick at the door and scream for Nancy to come let him in. At first, we thought he may be her boyfriend, but we could tell quickly that that was not the case. We emailed management about this, and as he kept coming around, extremely late at night and the window overlooked the door, we could see anyone and everyone who would come and go. They thanked us for notifying them and to keep them updated as necessary. This was the 13th of August. The second incident happened on August 20th. By now, we have both met Nancy and her boyfriend, Justin. Nice enough people. Kept to themselves, but liked to party. On August 20th, around dinner time, there was a very loud pounding on our hallway door. It is a big, metal door that management had installed a lock on to lessen the chances of homeless People getting into the hallways of the residence. The banging went on for a good five minutes and consisted of shouting and threats it was hard not to notice. Eventually, we heard Justin let the gentleman in, and we realized it was the same man from before. Justin denied the man entry to their apartment, going as far as to lock him out of their door. The man began kicking their door and telling them to open the hell up. Justin did, but left the slide lock on. At this point, my boyfriend, watching the interaction through the peephole, watched this gentleman pull out a gun out of his pants and flash it to Justin. At this point, my boyfriend was watching the interaction through our peephole. He was watching this gentleman pull out a gun and flash it to Justin door was then shut and unlocked. The man entered and the night was quiet. A little shaken, we considered calling the cops but instead decided to simply email management. To this, we got no reply. Just a short three days later, on August 23rd, we did however decide to call the cops. This time, the same thing happened. But the gentleman was never let into their apartment and he pulled a weapon out in the hall claiming he was going to shoot. He left before the police arrived. Again, we emailed management and received no response. By now, we were nervous as our neighbors were a clear threat to us. Now, in between the last event and the one I'm going to detail, there were many shouting matches between Nancy and Justin. Many more times did their friend come back and make a scene, but it was very much the same as before, including Breaking our hall door by kicking it so hard and pulling it off the handle. Now, September 8th rolls around, and this next thing happened. It is one of the three events that has made me jump every time I hear a loud noise. Around noontime, I was in class on Zoom. From my desk, with my headphones on, I could hear another fight ensuing across the hall. I prayed for it to be something that ended soon, but I was not so lucky. Within minutes, the fight escalated from screaming into hitting, punching, and throwing. Nancy was screeching that she was going to kill Justin and that he was killing her. Shakily, my boyfriend went Went to the door to get a better idea of the seriousness of this fight. After she continued screaming, I decided to call 911, explaining to the operator that once again the tenants were fighting. She told me the cops were on their way. Then there was a noisy thwack and a loud scream. Before we hung up, Justin swung open the door with blood pouring from his head. I informed the operator that Justin was bleeding and to send an ambulance. When the first responders showed up, Nancy refused to open the door. The cops were talking to her through the door and she kept insisting that it was not them that had been fighting. This may have been believable had there not been a trail of blood leading from their doorway. After about 10 minutes, Nancy finally let them in and explained that she had been liking a guy's photos on Facebook and Justin got jealous. So he threw her phone, leading them to get into a fight. One thing leads to another and she picked up a hammer and hit him in the head. No charges were filed and everyone went on with their day as if nothing had ever happened. I, on the other hand, was traumatized. No more than a week later, Justin was back at the apartment. Their nightly fights continued, and you could almost hear a collective groan of our neighbors the night he came back. We later came to learn that Justin was never actually a tenant. Only Nancy was, and that they were likely doing favors for their friend. We saw him come around occasionally, but not as often as before. He did, however, manage to get a key. He always came with an empty duffel bag and left with a filled one. I had the suspicion that they were working with drugs and he was the dealer. Anyways, on September 16th, the morning after my 22nd birthday, I woke up around 8am to a quiet sobbing sound. I cannot exactly distinguish who I was hearing or where it was coming from. I was a bit hungover and was not really sure if I was fully awake. I walked up to our window to get a better breeze in when I noticed three cop cars outside our building. They were all standing there questioning Justin. Oh, great, I thought to myself. I walked to our door and sure enough, Nancy stood giving a tearful story to an officer. I shook my head and decided to go back to bed. Around noon, I was again in class when a loud shriek broke the silence. My stomach dropped and I got a weird feeling. Connor walked over to the door and heard a few people in panicked voices across the hall. There's a woman crying over there, he told me. I want to go check in on her. She sounds hurt. I got up and checked and I heard it too. There was also a man saying, Crap, crap, what now? In a whispered shout. Oh boy. Call the cops. You do not know what's going on out there. Within minutes, the cops had arrived. Connor had just gotten off the phone with the dispatcher when six cop cars and an ambulance pulled up. The cops and paramedics were let into the building by one of the downstairs tenants and escorted them up to the apartment. Within minutes, a woman was escorted out on a gurney bleeding heavily from a stab wound in her abdomen. We later came to find out that Nancy nor Justin had even been home, but that three of their friends had been there hanging out. One gentleman was tweaking on whatever they were dealing with and got upset by something a woman had said. So he stabbed her. Until we called management, they had no idea what had happened. When they came to visit Nancy to inform her that one more strike and she would be evicted, she cursed at them through the door and told them to be more compassionate. I was irate. The last straw came not even a week later. At 4.42 a.m. on September 19th, I woke up to a blood-curdling scream from Nancy. He's killing me! He's killing me! She shrieked. I leaped out of bed shaking. I I grabbed my phone and tearfully begged the dispatcher to tell the officers to hurry. This screaming went on for 20 minutes before an officer arrived. Again, like all the times before, Connor went down to let the officers in. He pounded on the door and demanded to be let in. Both Justin and Nancy denied the entrance. Furious, I thought, like all the times before, the officer would simply walk away. But this time, he actually did something. This time, he told them they would either open the door or he would kick it down, as he was the first officer to ever actually be present for their arguments, and he had heard the claims that Justin was going to kill her. Within two days, Nancy was evicted. I'm still afraid that she will send someone after us for getting her evicted as the last officer did not make it so secretive as to who called and reported them. While she was friendly to our face, we could hear her making threats after each time cops had been called. I'm excited to say that after I graduate this spring, I will be moving, and hopefully never have to experience these things again. I am a qualified caving instructor. And honestly, it is not very often, at all, that I get frightened during a caving trip. Now, it is entirely possible that I have never gotten spooked because I am simply not claustrophobic, nor am I afraid of the dark. I mean, asking someone who likes caving to describe scary moments in a cave is a bit odd. But if you ask people who hated caving, but were somehow roped into it, that's where you're probably going to get scary stories. Those stories definitely might prove a little more fruitful. Having said that, there are definitely a few caving trips I have presided over that have not exactly gone according to plan. I used to do a lot of solo caving and rappelling down vertical caves. It was one of my favorite parts of the whole process. I must have dropped into a cave maybe 300 times or more. Last month, I took a small group of Boy Scouts from Michigan into a vertical cave. Being slightly out of practice and not trusting my well-worn gear to keep the kids safe I ended up borrowing one from a buddy of mine. It was a slightly smaller bundle, slightly narrower in diameter, but it was infinitely more flexible than mine was. I thought this might prove to be a boon, but it turns out I did not quite think this through, and problems that did not occur to me at the time began to manifest very quickly. Once I was in the cave itself, I figured out quickly that I did not have nearly the amount of control I was used to in rappelling. I found that I was able to stop But only just barely. Sitting over a 200 foot drop while hardly being able to keep myself from sliding, I decided to abort the rappel at the first ledge I arrived at, which was about 30 feet down. I had to lock off my rack and call on those who came with me to help me swing over the ledge and climb back out. Imagine that, having your life in the hands of a bunch of Boy Scouts. No offense to the little guys, they did the job, but I was worried for a minute or two. I did have climbing gear with me, and I suppose I could have switched over to another other rack, but that would have been a hell of a lot more trouble, so I took the easy way out. No, not that one. Since I was able to lock off the rack, I could simply rest there and think about my situation for a few minutes. The thoughts were not good. The Boy Scouts had their troop leader with them, so it was not like there was not a strong full adult there to help pull, but I will admit that I could not help imagining what would happen if something went wrong. If I were the panicking type, I suppose I would have been deathly afraid that I would lose my life right then and there, but that does not mean the prospect did not make me feel extremely nervous. I was literally dangling like 30 feet down into a pit with gear that was not right for the rope I was on, with absolutely no way to control my descent. The thing is, I am careful enough that when I decided that the rappel was not a sure thing, I chose to call it off entirely rather than risk that i had enough control to descend it safely that is the type of care that keeps you alive in caves like this but if you want to hear about something that really has the pucker factor to it then how about a vertical cave with pull downs you take your rope with you and an uninspected increase in water levels there is a cave out in tennessee where there are three vertical drops of over 100 feet or more but people typically only take one rope because the bottom of the cave is open, and you can pretty much walk out of it unless it is flooded. There is always water in the cave, anywhere from ankle deep to about 18 inches. Between the second and the third drop, there is a long 400-foot crawl with low ceilings and high water levels. When I have been, there was about a half a foot of water, with about the same amount of airspace above. It is a nice crawl, though, with pretty river pebbles on the floor and lots of small, but clean formations along the walls. White calcite formations, stalactites, stalagmites, and soda straws, mostly. Some of the formations are beige, yellow, or tinged with red, showing impurities, of course, which leads to lots of variation during the 400-foot crawl. If, for example... A caver was in a small party who were exploring this cave and dropped into it expecting a typical through trip but happened to have a problem during the second 100 foot rappel, the party could decide to float him through the crawl. They could pull down the rope and move him through where the entrance to the crawl is only to discover that the water levels are too high and there is an exceedingly small air gap in the crawl, but with the water that high, the movement of the water would be very swift and it may be too much for someone attempting to navigate it to fight their way back upstream. That person would have to contend with just a few inches of oxygenated air at the top of a passage that has razor-sharp rocks all along the cave ceiling, and at the end of the passage, the water jets over to this drop, and goes almost a half a mile down. The immense water pressure would try to push them out of the passage, and it would take a moment of strength and effort for a sustained period to be able to resist that water pressure, and honestly, it would not take long to exhaust someone, and when they run out of strength, then it is time for the big sleep. It is likely that the fall would not kill the caver outright since the bottom of the drop would be completely flooded. He had hit the bottom, and likely would break a bone or sprain an ankle, but the water would essentially break his fall, potentially saving his life. But that is only assuming that he could breathe the whole way down the passage without getting his face torn up by the rocks on the ceiling. As you can imagine, that is very very unlikely. If there is one thing that you can take away from this dumb story about caving, it is that you never, ever go alone, and you do not try to take an injured person out of the cave with small numbers. It is better to leave one person with the injured party and let two people go out and get help. That is why the smallest safe party is no less than about four people. But, with one person staying back and two people trying to make it out of a flooded passage, there is the potential for lots of drama. a few years back i was really into caving or to give it its boring name that no one uses spelunking i really did not think i would be into it when i first tried it like i had considered myself mildly claustrophobic the kind of guy who always felt a little anxious zipping a sleeping bag up all the way i don't know if it just woke something up in me or it was just the rush of getting over a fear or something to that effect but i took to it like a duck out of water You're somewhere you should not be, exploring parts of the world that very few people see, relying on people, truly relying on them, to ensure your safety in theirs. It is a rush, that is for certain, but it's not without its dangers. So every year, my family and a few close friends head out to a national park or something along those lines to spend some time with the nature. And one particular year, I managed to convince them to go all the way out to Mammoth Cave National Park over in Kentucky, which is home to more than 400 miles of passageways, making it the world's largest known cave system. The cave system is located within the Green River Valley and its winding chambers, pools, and the limestone labyrinths that are all equal parts beautiful and eerie. Ten different tours offer guests the opportunity to explore the decorated historic dripstone areas. The cave complex is especially well known for its natural entrance in Gothic Avenue, a passageway filled with historic stone monuments and signatures for 19th century visitors. So that was just about enough history and photo ops for my mom and aunts. The river could provide hours of fishing for my dad and uncles, all while myself and my cousins would enjoy the caving there. All went well with the vacation, right up until the second to last day when my cousin and I decided to go a little too deep into one of these caves. My cousin was new to caving, so for the first few days we did not go too deep or too far. Last thing I wanted to do was freak him out before we had done anything worth writing home about. But as the week ended, there was absolutely no way I was going home without finding something a little more extreme to traverse. So as we were heading back to civilization after an afternoon full of caving we found what looked to be a slit just about as high as our knees in the rock wall of a cavern. You had to get down on your stomach to fit in. It was such a tight squeeze. But if you did, it led to a small cross base that cut through the entire rock. After a few meters, I noticed that quartz was growing on the passageway ceilings, and in the light of our headlamps, they glittered in a way that I cannot really describe in words. It's something straight out of a fairy tale a still from those weirder Jim Henson movies. It was just magical. So we entered one at a time. Given that the tunnel was only wide enough for one person, the old claustrophobic me would have honestly thought this place was a living nightmare, for real. I would have straight up had a panic attack and probably died of heart attack before deprivation ever set in. Every single time you took a breath in some places, you would feel the ceiling of the tunnel on your back. It was that narrow but the new me just found it thrilling. Once you get it into your head that these things cannot just up and collapse on you, you get this feeling of calm, and then one of exhilaration, when you realize you were conquering your fears and going places other men dared not tread. The deeper inside the tunnel we went, the more incredible the scenery became. It was like a whole other tiny world, tucked away with the solid rock. But eventually, like most small subterranean tunnels, it just kind of petered out. At one turn, there was a dead end. The other was a host to all kind of stalactites and stalagmites. Those are those kind of rock spike things you usually see on the roofs of caves. Only, you get them on the bottom too in most places. I'm checking out these stalactites and stuff to see if there's a possibility of us twisting through them to get deeper into the section of the tunnel when I hear my cousin whispering something behind me. Something that honestly made my blood run cold. He said he could feel water on his back. Something was dripping on him. As it turns out, while everyone was having a good old time outside, checking out the statues and whatnot, it had started to rain. Only, they neglected to tell us that. So thanks, guys. It is also worth noting that the tunnel we were in had sank down into the rock for a little while before sort of flattening out at the bottom. And to save you all the little geology lecture, I'll get to the point. The tunnel we were in was filling up with water. Granted, it was filling up slowly, but the position we were in meant that we only had a few minutes to get out of there, and only a few inches of water could effectively drown us in this situation. And that is a real bad position to be if you don't own a pair of gills. We turned around as fast as we could, which took like the longest time when you factor in how narrow the tunnel was. Then began the long, slow crawl back along the flat part of the tunnel. It was absolutely horrific. I tried to keep calm and as collected as I could, but hearing my cousin almost cracking up in front of me is something that still makes me shudder to think about. My biggest fear was that he would just lock up, which scared people are prone to do during particularly grueling caving sessions. For some reason, the brain just decides it does not want to take the body any further, and that is how people get stuck down in the rock for hours before they are calm enough to keep going. I was terrified that he would just lock up, not move, and be the reason we both drowned down there, dying while our family laughed and joked in their marquee tents. But he did not. That magnificent beast kept his cool, relatively speaking anyway, and just pushed on. That does not mean it did not get close. It was a horrendous feeling. The water was slowly rising around us, seeing little drops turn into trickles, each new one causing my heart rate to speed up and my adrenaline to surge. By the time the tunnel started to turn upward, back towards the main entrance, the water was almost up to my lips. Every move we made was a splash, and both of our sets of clothes were completely soaked through. That little incident caused a ton of issues for the remaining two days. My aunt and uncle blamed me for almost getting my cousin killed, and they pretty much took it out of my parents for allowing me to have such a dumb hobby. We did not go back into those caves at all, and to be honest, it took me a few months before I even thought about caving at all. It has not put me off entirely. Bet your ass that I checked the weather before caving now, though. It's definitely made me more safety conscious. Every single time that I go outside, if it looks like it's even about to sprinkle, I won't go into any caves. It is just not worth losing your life over, no matter how amazing it is. Just last fall, I went on a camping trip to a wildlife reservation in northern New Mexico with my wife. We were doing a big road trip all the way from Louisiana where we live. We had a lot of fun until nighttime came. We had rented a cabin with a sunroof so we could enjoy the view of the night sky and the surrounding mountains. It was amazing and we got to see the Milky Way. Anyways, it was about 10.30pm, everything outside was pitch black. We were out there exploring the area with our flashlights. We came up to this boarded up cave and there were no signs up for trespassers. It was only halfway boarded up, so we decided to go inside and check it out. I couldn't really tell you if we regret going in there or not, because we found some amazing things inside. Like the idiots we were, we took some of these things because they looked valuable. That was not the worst thing we did as we went deeper into the cave. Then, We heard some strange noises coming from the other side. Whatever they were, it was not something we wanted to see. But oh my god, did we see it. It had an antler-like head and stood up on its back legs. The eyes shined a bright red color. But luckily, it was further away than we thought. We ran back to where we had come from and all the way back to the cabin. We got away with the things we took in our backpacks, but to this day... We still don't know what we saw. We constantly question, what was that thing? After finding the Swamp Dweller show, I do think it might have been a Wendigo or a Skimwalker or something like that. I don't know. Just don't go exploring random boarded up caves. I've been caving as a hobby for several years now. Nothing supernaturally creepy ever happened during any of my caving events, but I have been in some dangerous situations which have either left me questioning my sanity or the sanity of those around me. So, I used to go caving with a group of people from a university club, but I had been out of university for a few years and had just been doing my own thing. Well, one weekend, me and my friend Josie decided we should go on a little trip to the cave with these guys, you know, to see how the old club was doing the club that taught us how to cave, and we in turn taught the new guys when we were the old breed. So, anyway, the trip is going according to plan, and me and Josie go off caving on our own. But one evening, we decide to join the whole group and cave with them in a tunnel system near our communal campsite. Now, at the time, it was raining a little bit, and I was beginning to feel uneasy about the whole thing. But to be honest, I never voiced my concerns, and I just went with it. This was a big mistake. And so, it was that a large group of about 12 people arrived at this cave system, spending about 20 minutes checking their gear before entry. The cave system we were exploring is normally just a subterranean river on the inside, but it has a few level of corridors that you can explore high above the water itself. The entrance is tight though, and requires you to climb down this tight pipe extremely cautiously using only your feet to feel for stable footholds. There is absolutely no way for you to see what you are doing, and you can barely see what is below you. And basically, if you lose your footing there, it's gonna be a nasty fall that could leave you seriously injured if you fell to it. However, manage to keep your head together, and you'll be fine. So much of caving is winning the battle in your own mind, to be honest. So anyways, We get to the cave, and the guys in the club are doing their thing. Me and Josie are just the old, salty veterans coming along to relive the old college days. Once we are inside, we realize that there is one younger girl who has got herself somehow stuck in the entrance at the very rear of the group. It turns out, it was only her second caving trip ever, and for some reason, her buddies thought it would be a good idea to bring her into this one, even though she had panicked whilst in a much larger, easier cave system earlier in the week so one of the team leaders stays behind to help the panicking girl calm down and get her to advance more into the cave while the rest of us move deeper down some of the long corridors before we can start exploring the cave properly then i went and asked one of the leaders of the group a girl i had taught how to cave just a few years before what time it was and to my absolute shock and horror she said straight up that she does not know because she is not wearing a watch Shocked, I asked her how the hell she expects to know what time to leave the cave to be on time for the callout. For those who do not know, the callout is arguably the most important aspect of serious caving. It is where you let someone on the surface know, even if it's just a friend who is not even on the trip, exactly who is going to be present on a caving trip, as well as what time you plan on leaving, and without a callout, if something goes wrong, no one will ever know you are missing for a few days or even weeks and will then have potentially hundreds of caves to look over in hopes of finding you. And in that time, it is entirely possible that you could have died of deprivation by that point. Remember, it just takes around 72 hours without water for a person's heart to just pack up and cease beating. Anyway, the leader of all these sweet, innocent beginners tells me that she did not leave a call-out, or bring any first aid kit or safety equipment. I am literally furious that she has put us in this situation but I hold my cool long enough because I do not want the others to panic, because to panic in a cave system is straight up death sentences on everybody. But still, I tell her quietly that I am now the call out and to be out of the cave by 1.30pm. I reluctantly give her my watch, trying not to snap and straight up call her reckless and dumb before I start back towards the cave entrance. Back near the entranceway, the other leader guy was sitting with the girl who got stuck earlier, the same one who managed to get her into the cave. It turns out that she could just not handle it, and they had abandoned the attempt entirely. I go through the situation with them and tell them I am leaving the cave to be the callout guy. They ask me to go get a SRT kit, basically just ropes and a harness, in case any of the other caving club need to climb back out. So, I do just that. A little while later, I head back with the gear, which they did not have at all, and I had to borrow off other cavers who were luckily at the same campsite. I get back to the cave and the others are leaving, albeit rather slowly as it is a difficult entrance and climbing out is considerably harder than climbing in. They all manage to get out but lo and behold the panicking girl gets stuck and with two leaders trapped below her she is blocking the entrance. We harness her up and I rig up an anchor to try and secure her on a rope in case she falls, but she is wedged in there tight and is not in the right frame of mind to get moving. Then I get the news that the others from below? are freaking out because the cave is starting to fill because of the rain. After what seems like an eternity of them nicely talking to this panicking girl, telling her she is doing great and she will be fine, she is getting worse at this stage, I freak out. I shout at her that she needs to get herself together and get out of the cave because others are stuck behind her. It kind of works and she nearly stops having a panic attack. Not entirely, but she stops hyperventilating, which just makes her more stuck. She still will not climb out though. So against all common sense, I lie down into the hole and grab her by the harness and pull her out of the cave. After that, I told the club they need to get their wits together and stop being cowboys. But I have not gone back to them since, because their foolishness straight up nearly got two team leaders killed. My significant other and I are pretty adventurous. We both love camping and hiking. A few years ago, right when I had left the military, we planned a trip to visit her mother and stepfather in New Mexico for a month around Thanksgiving. We decided while we were there, we'd go to the Carlsbad Caverns National Park. Her stepfather had to work, but offered us his Jeep to use, and her mom graciously made us a picnic lunch. Her 17-year-old sister joined us. So we headed out in the morning and decided to do the self-guided tour as my significant other grew up around there and has been there several times while growing up. Anyway, we have a great day and at one point we decide to go to the big room trail. There wasn't a lot of tourists that day, there were maybe another two or three parties at most that we even encountered on trail. We are halfway through when we start hearing this mournful singing. It was a male's voice, but we looked forward and back and didn't see anyone. We are a little bit creeped out, but whatever. Homeboy wants to sing, let him. Until the singing got louder, and we started to hear what he was singing. It involves slitting throats and raining blood. Now, my sister-in-law and significant other are pretty creeped out. They are definitely trying to turn around now. We turn around and run into another group who looked freaked out as well. It's a couple with a nine-year-old child visiting from england they heard the singing too so we all nervously chuckle and head back we are standing outside the entrance when this guy walks out he's humming and so my significant other nudges me he isn't outwardly creepy but he gives off some major creeper vibes he sees us watching him and he gives us the scariest freaking smile he then follows us at a distance the entire time of our stay We went back later in the week with more family and thankfully didn't run into him. I don't know what that guy was doing singing in the mouth of that cave, but, man, I really hope we don't find out. Last night, my boyfriend and I were driving home from Universal Studios in Orlando. We were rerouted away home we have never gone before, and we're traveling basically in the middle of nowhere. My boyfriend's speedometer is broken on his car, and he must press the button to reset the miles after he gets gas. This will be especially important soon. We were driving on a deserted road in the middle of absolute nowhere with not one car in sight. My boyfriend realized we hit the 130 mile mark on his odometer. That means we needed gas but there was literally not one gas station in sight. I put the search in my phone for a gas station nearby, and we found one. It turned out to be closed. In a hurry, we found another gas station five minutes up the road. This is where the story truly gets weird. My boyfriend thought he closed his gas cap after he filled up and we were once again driving along this deserted road. We heard a loud bang and realized he forgot to put the gas cap back on. So we are driving around this dark road looking for the gas cap. He finally pulls over and realizes somehow the gas cap is still attached to the car. We get back on track to the other gas station. Out of nowhere, I had a horrible thought about something going wrong at that gas station. I pushed it aside as best as I could because I knew we needed gas, and AAA is not an option where we were. We get to this gas station, and the lights are kind of on. This road literally leads to a dead end with a gas station on it. The only way to leave this area was to turn left or go straight out of the gas station. My boyfriend got out of the car to see if we could get gas, and the feeling intensified. I have literally never felt like that in my entire life. My stomach dropped into my butt. I have been in very disturbing situations, such as almost being kidnapped twice, being followed home, watching someone being taken away in a body bag after being hit by a car, and even some paranormal situations. I can talk about this sometime in the future, but I have never, ever felt like this before. I saw a white car pulling up the road and it looked like it was gonna make a left. Keep in mind, there is literally no one on this road. He pulls up and notices my boyfriend and comes back up with his windows down. I found this very strange because my boyfriend has a genuinely nice sports car and my mind immediately went to panic mode, I started screaming his name, and the man realized that someone else was in the car. He turned left and sped off suddenly. Sadly, I did not get his license plate because of how dark it was. The situation frightened me more than you can even imagine. It may not seem too scary, but it was easily one of the most terrifying things to watch because I did not know if I was going to witness my boyfriend being robbed at gunpoint or something like that. The feeling and thought I just had 10 minutes earlier are what also made the situation even worse. We found a gas station with actual human life around, and we made it home safe and sound. Once I got home, my dad told me that that road we were driving on was famous for many bodies being found on it. I hope no one gets put in that situation. Be safe out there, my friends. Some background information here. I live in a small suburban town in the middle of nowhere. It is a quiet existence. It is an upper-middle-class neighborhood filled with soccer moms and stuck-up kids who play way too much lacrosse. There are churches everywhere. My neighborhood likes to act like they are perfect and safe, but it is not. Nobody wants to admit how strange this place is, and they are particularly good at hiding it. Here are a handful of strange occurrences that have happened. There is a path that some kids walk to school through. On one side of the path are train tracks and on the other side is a small forest. I walk through this path quite often, and I have seen some disturbing stuff there. One time I was walking through this path by myself and I saw something lying on the ground. It was about the size of a basketball and was disheveled and furry. As I walked closer to this thing, I recognized what kind of animal it was. Lying on the gravel path was a mutilated body of what used to be a raccoon. It was completely skinned, except for its legs and tail. It had no head. I was shocked at this point. But the more I looked at it, the stranger it got. There was no blood anywhere on the corpse or on the ground. This thing was absolutely clean. Grossed out, I walked past it and went on my very way. The next time I went down that path, the corpse was gone. Another time, I was walking on the path and decided to hike in the woods. A few yards into the woods, there is a clearing where kids go to smoke and drink. It was the winter currently, so nobody had been there for quite some time. The clearing had fallen tree branches all over it. To the side of the clearing, there was a two-foot wooden cross halfway covered by a bush. The cross was made of two wooden planks that had been nailed together. There were more nails stuck through the cross in random places, but were not all placed so that they went completely through the board. It was tattered and stained with what looked like blood. I quickly left the woods and walked back to the path and then jogged home. There is also an unexpected amount of child abuse and drug deals that happen there. This place is sketchy, but it pretends not to be. I don't know, man. There has to be some type of cold stuff that's happening here. Living in the middle of nowhere sounds serene to most people, but from my experience, it's honestly downright weird It's downright creepy, and it's just strange. I've never really had any sort of supernatural experiences until I moved home. We moved from a city in England to a small village in the highlands of Scotland. It was pretty much in the middle of nowhere. It was a big change and I know some people may be thinking that the experiences that me and my family went through could have been due to the stress of moving and just generally feeling unsettled in a new house, but I am convinced it was more. This was about 10 years ago now, and the house we moved into was a detached four-bedroom bungalow with a neighbor about 100 meters behind us and another neighbor about 200 meters away. At first, it was just me and my mom and my sister in the house as my dad had not found a job yet, so he was still working in England and came up to see us every weekend. When we first moved in, my brother came with us for a bit to help us unpack and settle in. He did not permanently move with us because he was about 20 and had his own life going on back home. One day, me and him and my sister were playing hide-and-seek for ages. Later in the day, when we were not playing anymore, I was lying on my bed listening to music when I saw someone who I thought was my sister out of the corner of my eye, slowly walking in the hall as if she were trying to creep up on me. I pulled my headphones out and called out, I'm not playing anymore, to which my sister shouted, what are you on about, all the way from the living room, which was the opposite side of my house. I shot up in bed a bit scared, but I assumed it must have just been me seeing things. Once we had been there for a few weeks, I started hearing male voices coming from the living room at night time two distinctly separate voices having a conversation, but I could never quite pick out individual words or hear what they were saying. The first time it happened, I just shook it off and went back to sleep as I assumed my mom was still up watching TV or that we had left the TV on. It happened the next night, and this time I sat up in bed and strained to hear. We had been watching Supernatural before we went to bed, but I distinctly remember turning the TV off, so I was confused as to why I could hear talking. I got up and went to check the living room and the voices stopped. I felt a bit uneasy, because, well, where had the voices gone? But I went back up to bed and did not think too much of it. I heard this almost every night for quite a long time, and it really scared me initially, but I got used to it. It did stop eventually, and it never felt sinister I guess, I just do not have an explanation for it. We lived in the middle of nowhere, and our nearest neighbors were an elderly couple, so it's not like it was them talking outside a window or anything. I didn't really have any more supernatural experiences myself. The only things of interest to note is that I had started having sleep paralysis whilst living in the house, and when my mom's friend who claims to be a medium and a psychic came to visit, she stayed in my room and said she had extremely vivid lucid dreams, and one night she could see animals crawling around my room, like squirrels up on the wardrobe and things like that. For some reason this really creeps me out. My mom says that one night she was the last person awake and was sitting in the living room. She had not closed the curtains because it was the summer, and we liked looking out at the forestry around us, and no one was around to investigate our house anyway. That was one of the perks of being in the middle of nowhere. She says that suddenly, she saw a strange creature in the garden. It was about the height of a deer, but its face was kind of feline with arched pointed ears, and it was super pale, almost white. She blinked and it was gone, so it could have been one of those blurry things you see. But the details are so specific for something you just catch a fleeting glimpse of. Lastly, one time, when my brother stayed with us, he swears that he saw the outline of a face pressed against the outside window looking in. My dad and sister never experienced anything, apparently. And I have not experienced anything since we left the house except for sleep paralysis. But that's not technically related to anything. The only other supernatural thing I experienced was when I was younger, and we still lived in England. It was in our downstairs bathroom, and we heard my mom call from upstairs. It sounded like she called my name and was asking me to come to her, which I thought was weird because my family all use different nicknames for me, and I very, very rarely get called by my actual name. When I came out of the bathroom, I started going upstairs and said, Coming! And My mom popped her head out and said, What do you mean? And I said you called for me downstairs, didn't you? and she said she did not. We both assumed I was hearing things or whatever, but I don't think I was. I still get creeped out thinking about these stories, what happened, and what could have been causing all those voices and sounds. Hey swamp folk, sorry to interrupt these stories, but today, this episode is sponsored by Audible. Now, I'm sure most of you know what Audible is, but if you don't know, let me explain just a little bit. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. Honestly, you're gonna find the world's largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases, to memoirs, languages, business, motivation, horror, crime, everything you could ever want is all in one place. They have thousands of popular, binge-worthy podcasts, including my own. All in one place. Recently, I've been enjoying Audible and listening to one of my favorite books, If You Tell, by Greg Olson. It's a 2021 Audi Award nominee for Best Nonfiction Book. Do be warned, it it is a pretty graphic book, and if you're into true crime, I think you're going to enjoy it. And with thousands of titles and audiobooks to choose from, there's something for everyone here on Audible. So what are you waiting for? Join me and millions of others over at audible.com/swamped or text swamped to 500-500. Visit audible.com/swamped or text swamped to 500-500. You can also find a URL in the description down below. Now, back to the stories. I'm a female, and this happened when I was incredibly young, sometime around the age of 14. My life had gone haywire, and I did not spend a lot of time at home. My parents had filed for divorce, during which time my mother had kind of lost it and had allowed me to do pretty much whatever I wanted since she was going through plenty in her own life. Then, my dad suddenly moved back in And that all came to a screeching halt. And I was not too cool with it. So my reaction was to stay gone doing whatever I wanted to. Just as much as I wanted. Which ended up getting me quite literally thrown out of the house permanently. But that is a whole other story. So I had two friends that I hung out with normally. That was about four years older than me. And had just graduated high school. At the time I think I was still lying to them about how old I was. They were both 18 and at the time I told them I was 16 when I was only 14. Anyway. We planned a camping trip without any definite destination, but being that we lived in Colorado Springs, the mountains and vast possibilities for potential camping spots were only a hop, skip, and a jump away. So we headed west into the mountains in two separate vehicles and with several other people, one of which was this gigantic guy that I did not like much. He always gave me the creeps, and since this was 25 plus years ago, I cannot honestly remember his name, so we will just call him Brian. So about halfway up the mountain, One of my two friends realizes she left something important back home and needs to turn back and go get it. So me and my other friend and our carload of people, including Brian, continued our way up. We make it to the middle of nowhere in the mountains and still have no clue where we're going to camp. So we are wandering around in the woods on dirt roads with civilization a distant memory. Suddenly, our car breaks down. And to make matters even worse, right around that time it begins to rain. But since we were already prepared to camp, That is what we do overnight. Brian is sitting next to us the next morning and randomly pulls out a handgun and says he stole it from the parents of one of the girls that are in the other vehicle. Brian goes from being creepy to downright scary. Because not only does this guy seem to have a noticeably short fuse, but now we are dealing with somebody with a short fuse who is armed with a deadly weapon, and we are stranded with him in the middle of nowhere. So we all decide without Brian that we should watch what we say to this guy and try to keep him from blowing a fuse on us. All of us now muddy and dirty from setting up tents in the rain on the side of the road, decide we should not just sit here and hope that the other caravan returns and is able to find us. So, we pack up our gear, and get back to the road and wait for someone to pass. And not a soul does. So we start walking, all four of us, and all of our camping gear, until we make it to a paved road. After an hour or two, a truck finally comes into view on the highway. We all flag him down. We explain what has happened, and ask for a ride to a phone. The guy graciously loads us all, and our gear, into the back of his truck. We finally make it to a phone and call our friend, who tells us, for some reason, I cannot remember now, that she had decided not to go with us and to stay in town. But she does agree to come to where we are to pick us all up. When we all finally make it back, the friend that came to get us tells us that she had spoken to the girl whose parents Brian had stolen the gun from, who had been in the car. She told her that Brian had gone on a camping trip with us because he had shot and killed someone with that gun, and he was trying to hide out. I can imagine that was the actual reason for her not coming. But it had also left the rest of us stranded in the middle of nowhere with a killer still armed with his murder weapon. Thankfully, though, We finally all made it back to civilization unscathed, alive, and I believe the guy did end up being arrested a short time after that. But man, did I realize that I had been literally stranded in the middle of nowhere with a murderer for three days. It hit me like a ton of bricks when it was all over. I drive trucks for a living here in England. It was one of the only jobs I could pretty much just walk into after being medically discharged from the army, the Royal Logistics Corps to be specific, with some intense back problems. I had tried physiotherapy, yoga, acupuncture, all sorts of things, but sitting in the cab of a military truck for so long had really done a number on my spine. It was horrible that I was basically forced into the same line of work, only in the civilian world and I had no choice but to take a daily regime of strong pain medication just to make it through the days and nights of long-distance truck driving. But that is neither here nor there, I suppose. I had only been working for the company I am with now for about six or seven months when I was driving down this lonely stretch of road just outside of Rotherham in South Yorkshire. There, I see this young woman at the side of the road, bags in hand with her thumb out like she was looking to hitchhike. It is not like I do not see a good few hitchhikers on my routes. They are much more common than you might expect, especially during the summer months when people can afford to be standing at the side of the road, sometimes for hours at a time, waiting for lifts. I never normally stop for people. I have seen enough horror movies to know that you are inviting trouble on yourself if you just let a total stranger into your truck for long distances. But there was something about this girl that had me slowing down and stopping at the roadside for her. I do not know if it was how young she was or how desperate she looked. She did not look like the kind of scruffy, hippie type, or dodgy cardboard sign holder that I normally see standing out there. So there I was, opening my cab door and helping her climb inside. I asked her where she was looking to go, only to have her reply something like, anywhere, just drive. This bothered me a little bit, I will be honest, as I did not really like the idea of having someone just sat in my passenger seat for the unforeseeable future. I'm not exactly the most sociable person, and awkward silences are annoying for me at the most, let alone when it's with some girl that is half my age. God knows what people would think if they saw me, probably that I was some sort of perv or something, so I ask her again, only rephrasing the question so that I make it clear that I cannot just have her sitting in my truck for the foreseeable future, as I would be looking for somewhere to stay overnight at some point. I know it sounds a bit mean, but I did not want to have to properly look after this girl, paying for her food, paying for a hotel room, and all that. I had never picked up a hitchhiker before, but they are usually set on certain places that you can just drop them off at, right? So after a bit of awkward silence, and I made it clear that I loathed those, I asked her why she was on the road. She did not give me, honestly, much of anything in the way of specifics, just that she was having trouble at home and needed to get away. I asked her if it was a fight with her parents or a boyfriend or something, and that maybe she should just not run away from her problems, but go back and fix whatever it was, you know, like address the issue or whatever instead of just straight up avoiding it. But she immediately took issue with the fact that I had asked her about a potential boyfriend, saying she is getting out immediately, and if I had any funny ideas about where this was going, that made the whole thing feel even more awkward, and I reassured her that I did in fact have a long-term girlfriend at home, and that I certainly was not in the habit of picking up young girls from the side of the road. I am basically explaining that I'm not a perv when I see a police car pass us on the road, Nothing unusual, so it barely registers other than for me to make sure I am not over the speed limit or anything. You know, the usual, I just saw police car anxieties. But a moment later, I hear sirens behind me, looking into the rear view to see what appeared to be the very same car, having turned around to follow me, with a view to pull me over. I groan, saying something about hoping my brake lights are not out, something along those lines, and slowly beginning to pull my truck over to the side of the road. This is right when the girl in the passenger seat freaks out and starts pleading with me to not pull over. I mean, not just pleading, but she is begging, obviously getting really panicked at the idea of the police officer. Now, this made me feel bloody nervous. What had she done that made her nervous around the police? And how would that reflect on me if I were caught with her? These questions are whirling around my head, and I just tell her to calm down, that I had absolutely no other choice but to pull over. I was explaining further that I was hardly about to get into a high-speed police pursuit on account of a stranger. She burst into tears at that point, just sinking her head into her hands and weeping. But she does not try to run away. Nothing like that. So that sort of reassured me that she had not committed some sort of violent crime, or at least that she was not some hardened criminal on the run from the law. I watched the policeman that had pulled me over get out of his car and walk up to the side of my truck which also happens to be the side that the girl sat on. As soon as he looks through the window, I hear him say something like, "'Get out of the truck, Natalie.' This obviously has me taken aback. Who the hell was that girl that the police officer were on bloody first name turns with her? She is crying and sobbing, but looks up at the window and screams no through the glass. The policeman mentions for me to unwind down my window, and I hesitate for a moment. The girl, this Natalie, is obviously terrified of being arrested or whatever is about to happen. The policeman then says something over his radio, something I did not catch because the glass is in the way. So to better hear what he's saying, I start winding down the window. It was too late to hear what he said on the radio, but I do hear what he said next. Your parents called again, Natalie. They're tired of you running away like this, and quite frankly, I'm tired of having to come fetch you every time this happens. I suppose I knew all I needed to know from that, but that's when I heard something weird. I looked on in a kind of grim fascination at what was unfolding— she was saying that they're not my parents. Why won't any of you understand that? The girl started to scream. Every time you drag me back there they do worse and worse things to me, and call it punishment. They say it's for my own good, but it's not. It's not at all. She turns to me, pulling her sleeve up to show me all kinds of burns and scars up her arm. Ones that were so pronounced and gross that I recoiled in disgust and horror. Please, I am begging you, do not let them take me back. I'll do anything. Please just don't let them take me again. What was I supposed to do? Drive off with this girl and get chased by the police? She could have been mentally ill or something, severely delusional with a self-harm problem, and I'm just going to drive off with her in the middle of nowhere so she can run away from her home or something? Besides, I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. Police backup arrived, and when there was enough of them, they dragged the girl out of my truck kicking and screaming before they threw her in the back of a police car and drove away. I tried my best to get some of the police to explain to me what the hell had just happened. "'and I expected to get some sort of answer "'along the lines of my previous suspicions. "'But they just waved me away, "'told me it was none of my business, "'and that I should not have been picking up young women "'from the side of the road anyway. "'I still do not know what happened to that girl, "'and I hope she has gotten the treatment she needs. "'A part of me wonders if I had helped prolong "'some sort of horrible cycle of abuse, "'one which the actual police were complicit.'